What's up my fellow poker enthusiasts, it's Renee aka The Wacko here and together with my co-host Adam Carmichael we present to you the Mechanics of Poker podcast. In this podcast we deconstruct high stakes poker players figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they had to develop to surpass them. Over the years, me and Adam have gained a lot of experience in both reaching high stakes poker ourselves and teaching other players to do the same. We have bundled all this knowledge together in our coaching program, The Mechanics of Poker, which is the most complete poker coaching product on the market. If you want to have a chance to work with me and Adam so you can get unstuck and make more progress in your poker career, go over to mechanicsofpoker.com to apply. But without further ado, let's learn from another high stakes player's journey in today's episode. Hi there, happy new year everyone. New year, new podcast. I hope this is going to be your greatest poker year ever. And to help with that, we have decided to open up a small number of seats for our Mechanics of Poker program, which you can apply for throughout the first week of January. Okay, so it's only open the first week of January. So if you want to work with me and Adam and make 2023 your best poker year ever, go over to mechanicsofpoker.com, apply, and maybe we will select you to join our program. All right. Now for today's episodes, we have a live connection with the poker capital of Europe, Vienna, to have a chat with high six poker player and coach George Bro Froget. George has been playing poker for many years, of which the majority he was stuck at 200 NL, but by upgrading his beliefs and surrounding himself with the right people, he managed to work his way up to high stakes poker, which is the story that he will share with us today. Adam. Any beliefs that needed upgrading for you to break through mid-stakes? Mid-stakes are an interesting period of most players' career where you start making money for the first time. So the main belief that I had to let go of is I have to sacrifice what I've already earned in order to go to that next level. So all of a sudden you have to give up something to gain the next thing. When you're at the lower stakes, it's all about just get to the next level, achieve more. You haven't really got anything that you could lose, like nothing meaningful anyway. But as you get the mid-stakes, that's where comfort kicks in. That's where you have to break past that feeling of wanting to settle for where you're at. And very often you need someone around you or at least some sort of, in my my circle, I had two two friends who were wanting to play higher stakes who kind of pushed me and nudged me. And I had to let go of my comfort zone, let go of my limitations around what stakes I could play. So yeah, really interested to hear George's story because he was stuck at mid-stakes for quite a while, which often means that there is some sort of limitation that he was creating for himself. We know it's a limitation because he got past it eventually and ended up at the high stakes. We know it wasn't a a long-term thing. So I'm really interested to know um, what he went through during his mid-stakes grind and then what changed, what upgrades did he make and his character traits and his approach to poker that allowed him to be a high-stakes player. So very interested in today's guest. Yeah, me, I'm very curious as well. I, I mean, I've contacted George already last year, a long time ago, and I've been kind of sending him messages months after months after, and he finally agreed to come on. So really grateful to have him, especially as the first podcast of, of this new year. Couldn't have wished for one of the better guests. 
before we start, I would like to give a big shout out to our sponsor, GTO Wizard. In my opinion, the best way of studying poker makes GTO very accessible for everyone. And in my opinion, it's one of the best places to go to if you're serious about your game. Okay. Next to having GTO solutions for every spot and having the ability to upload your hands and have Wizard find it for leaks, you get access to weekly coaching webinars in which various coaches, including myself, educate you on the most important spots to start crushing the game. So go over to gtowizard.com slash mechanics to get started and you will get 10% off on your first month. Okay, that's gtowizard slash mechanics. Now, without further ado, let's get into today's episode with George, you met bro, Froget. All right, we're here today with George, you met bro. How are you, George? Yeah, really good, man. Happy to be here. Excited to to chat. Yeah, I've uh, I've stalked you already for a long time. I'm trying to have you on, and here we are finally today. Thank you for coming on. And I wanted to start this pot uh, as it be- has become a trend amongst the players we have had on that they've done something competitive pre poker usually gaming or sports. In your case, this was swimming, becoming fifth of your country in the youth division. Now, you, I think, pre-podcast said, ah, you know, it's not that big of an achievement. You know, it's not like, it's not like I went to the Olympics. But I'm always yeah. curious, like, what drove you to take uh, swimming series and try to be competitive in that instead of just, you know, jumping, jumping in the water slide and having fun in the pool? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question, I guess. I think, like... As, as far as I can remember, uh, when I was young, at least, not not so much now, but when I was young, I was always super competitive in like any sport I did. And I wasn't really very good at many of them. Uh, I kind of like always like wanted to do, do well and um, wasn't so good. But swimming is kind of um, it's kind of a sport where it, it like low levels, at least the more you train, the better you are, if, if that makes sense, uh, mm-hmm. compared to like other sports like football, where like that if you don't have natural talent you know you can play and play and play and you're never going to be fifth in the country um but yeah when I was um I think that was kind of what drew me drew me to it I was like quite good already because I swam so much when I was a kid like my parents always took me swimming and then uh once I started to have success obviously it became like more appealing because like I said I was playing football with my mates all the time and I was one of the worst of everyone um and it was nice to just have something where I was I was good at it um and then yeah I started training more and more. I think at my peak, I was training maybe um, like I was training before school uh, when I was 11 or 12 and then going to school. Um, but I had some problems because uh, I was fifth, I think, when I was 11 years old, maybe. And then I, I kind of had this one year where I didn't grow and everyone else did. And swimming, it's, um, it's, it's problematic when this happens. Yeah. So all these kids are suddenly like fully grown men. Uh, and, and I was still still a kid. And, yeah, then I kind of lost the fire of it when every year I was getting worse and worse and worse. Um, but yeah, I loved it. I, I still swim nowadays, but like not not competitively, just in the pool of my, uh, just to, to keep fit sometimes when I can motivate myself to go. What was it that you realized like, okay, swimming is maybe is maybe not for me? Did you hit, like, was that when that plateau hit and you were just like, okay, genetically, I guess the rest is now just so ahead of me. It makes no more sense. There was no more, it didn't look fair anymore to you. Yeah, I think I, I like, I was always in everything kind of a realist and I knew I was never going to be in the Olympics or whatever. Um, so once I, once I started kind of slipping and slipping down the rankings, so to speak, I kind of joined a smaller club and was swimming less competitively and just treating more as a social thing. Um, when I was maybe like 15 and stuff. 
and it's so much time commitment as well because like I said if you if you don't put the volume in you just can't be as good as other people um I think Michael Phelps was saying in in a podcast I listened to him he was saying he was uh training three times a day for like three years and didn't miss a single training session and um and then every single time he was training hard enough to make himself feel sick so this is kind of the levels that you get to at the very very top um so yeah it was when I, maybe by the time I was like 30 and I was like swimming in county uh, championships and doing all right but like not trying as hard anymore um and then gave up completely competitive swimming when I was 15 I guess um but it's, it's also one thing I've realized since as, a, as an adult well semi-adult I guess 29 years old now I guess it counts um <laughs> It's like the amount of commitment is for your parents as well. Um, Cause like my mom and dad both had full-time jobs and my dad was like waking up before work to drive him to a swimming pool at 6 a.m. And at the time I was like, oh, I can't be forward to go swimming. So they're like moaning about it, but like you don't think about for them finishing work and, and then picking you up. And once I got to kind of 15, I started to realize this a bit more. And I was like, if I'm not gonna like give it everything, it's not really fair to, to put, put, put them under, uh, well, for them to expect them to do it uh, and take me to the pool and stuff as well. Yeah, that's a very mature thing to realize, I think, at the age of 15. When you then swam non-competitively, the joy was a bit gone, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't quite the same because you you it's it's kind of like poker, which I guess we'll talk about later in similar terms. Like when you're kind of rising the ranks, um, and, and you're kind of getting this new feeling of like being better than someone else, like achieving something you never thought you'd achieve. It's just a different feeling to kind of swimming in like um and like coming like third and second in races all the time. But at the same time, um, as you get older and bigger, you still get faster. So you're still getting like new personal records. They're just relatively not as good. Like I'm pretty sure even now, if I if I like properly time myself, I'd probably be faster than I ever was when I was competing, just because of the fact that I'm stronger and, and older, et cetera. Um, so you do still get that element of improvement, which is which is nice. And the social side is very, very good as well, because you're always swimming relays, you're on buses, like different events together and stuff. And that was something that I, I really enjoyed. Um I yeah. was wondering if if you uh, if you look at poker, do you think poker then is in a way fairer than is that a word fairer than swimming is? Yeah, I mean, I think like poker compared to sports is like fairer if if if, if we're judging fair by uh, how much effort you get put in, how much you get out, um, because most sports, especially at elite level, rely so much on natural talent because you get kind of filled in and filled in until you're only against people who had a lot of natural talent. And then once you're at that level, um, if you don't have that, it's very hard for you to be competing. Whereas poker, there's a lot of like barriers. Uh, I, I don't, I just don't think like innate ability is quite as important um, as in sports, but I guess it's very hard to quantify that. But yeah, I, I think for sure poker is one of the fairer arenas, at least for now. Yeah, we, we usually in our questionnaire, we give you like a statement to choose from where do you think talent is necessary or you think you can achieve anything you can put when you want to put your effort in you went yeah. for the latter you chose if you put your effort you you can make that i remember actually in the previous podcast with berkey he was actually more convinced about talent definitely plays a big role obviously you know you still need to put in put in the time you still need to put in the work but in the end uh, in order to really make it and then we're talking top one percent he was very convinced that Definitely, you yeah. need some sort of innate abilities. Do you agree with that? Because, like, obviously, the definition of succeeding, I believe anyone can be can make their money from poker, be a poker professional. But if you're asking me, can anyone play, you know, super high rollers? I'm like, eh, you know, maybe yeah. not. So, what kind of innate abilities do you think, like, at the top top, 
have in terms it's, of talent? It's such an interesting question because when you asked me that, I couldn't remember what I couldn't like, have told you what I would have put on the questionnaire because I think it's like so so subjective and close. And it's something we often talk about in our house. We're like, oh uh, yeah, um, like do you think if you picked a random person off the street and you gave like your full year of dedication to them, could you teach them to beat like two hundred Zoom? Um, and it's just like a random person and. And, and we normally conclude that we think you couldn't, uh, I think is the consensus, because the people you're exposed to in your day-to-day -day life just, just aren't the same as a, a subset of like, um, like, it's easy to think yes, because you teach them some like population data, some basic lines and so on, that's enough. But the kind of risk aversion side of things, um, I think is, and this brings back to your question of what you think is most important. I think this ability to handle uh, losses it's just not something that like a lot of the population can ever build up, maybe. Um, like I'm just, I just kept trying to think about the people I interact with in my life that aren't related to poker and, and the way they react to adversity generally is, is like not compatible with being a successful poker player, at least at the very highest stakes. And I think you can improve on that. Obviously, you can improve how you handle things going badly, but human beings aren't very good at it in general. And that some people just have such a baseline that they're never going to get to the ability where they can like sit down in a super high roll and lose for like four years in a row and still be there executing well the next, the next year. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure. To be honest with you. Yeah. I guess, I guess indeed it's the random picking a random person off the street is something different than picking a random person who's already playing in the, who's already playing poker in the casino. Right. If you get like yeah. a low stakes player, that already kind of filters out the people who are not attracted to the game and to, to, to begin with. I guess if you take those players, the chance of succeeding are way higher. Yeah, I think so. Well, it helps as well in other rules um, because it takes a while for this. But um, yeah, I think so. But but I do think this, this mental game side and this kind of uh, yeah loss aversion is maybe one of the most important skills, especially from what I've seen. Um, the players I know, they've obviously worked on it a lot, but they're the players I know who have succeeded at the very highest stakes are very good at this this aspect of some of things. And as we'll talk about later, probably it's something I actually struggled with a lot. Like once you start um, losing such huge amounts of money and having to to, to turn up and execute uh, in a way which makes you a plus EV player day in, day out with, with that still going on. Um, but yeah, I think in Phil Ivey's um, uh, interview he did with Joe Ingram, he, he said something which kind of resonated a bit with me where he also said, he when when his father passed away, he was kind of numb to it because he got so used to suppressing his emotions for so many years. Um, and yeah, we were talking about this in like our house. I'd be like, yeah, we could come home and the house is burnt down, and we'd be like shrugging, being like, oh well, like nothing we can do about it now. May as well just just move on and not be tilted about it and stuff like this, which is obviously very very good for poker. But in life, it definitely like Phil was certain causes some problems as well. Um, and. And then it, it just becomes really hard, basically balancing these two sides of things. I think so. It's not necessarily to like it can sound condescending to be like, oh yeah, people can't handle the risk aversion; they'll never succeed at high stakes because of it. But for the average person, um, but it's not necessarily a skill you want in the rest of your life to be completely numb to to what's going on in the world around you. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting because exactly when you said that, you know, the house burns down or when stuff when adversity happens, I used to take a lot of pride in how how I can handle it. Right? It's like, yeah, shit happens, you know, variants move on out of our control. But indeed, like there's another side as well, and that's kind of the side where I'm now, where I'm trying to allow a bit more the emotion, you know, actually feel sad about it. Like, hey man, my house burned down. Shit, there was a lot yeah. of things that I, you understand? 
to at least have a certain window to kind of grief, I guess, in that situation to be sad about it. But then I guess the difference is how you then further respond to that situation, how out of control you're going to get people freak out or people stay within that emotion for it way too long. I guess, you know, being sad about it for, you know, at least a couple of hours is is totally, totally human. And I think a lot yeah. of players that listen to this who, who have a relationship can definitely relate to yeah, this. The amount of times that my wife went to me like, hello, hello, can I have some emotion, please? But yeah, I mean, if you, if you just got home out of a whole eight hours of grinding where you're trying to suppress your emotions and not go with the ups and downs, yeah, it's very hard to suddenly be a loving, openly warm, emotional guy at home, right? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And at least, yeah. And I, at least then I still try to a certain degree, whereas you say you live with other poker players, which basically that keeps you in that mode 24 hours a day. Yeah, yeah. And, and like you said, with relationships, it's, it's sometimes the hardest thing. Um, and yeah, I think it's just something in general in poker, like uh, I've talked talk about a lot recently, it's like people kind of forget that you want to become very good at poker and this is like admirable and something which I've spent a lot of my life doing, obviously. But you don't want to forget, like, there's no point. Like, the end goal isn't to be the best, the best at poker and terrible at everything else in life. So, like, yeah, managing the kind of crossovers is is very difficult, and like balancing it for sure is is hard. Um, and this, yeah, this loss aversion is maybe the the hardest part, I think, because it's like the least the the thing that humans are the worst at, and maybe what makes people good at poker is your ability to like call and lose and be happy about it um, constantly. Um, so you work super hard on suppressing this kind of reaction to results. And then like, like, I, like we're talking about in real life, this doesn't make you a kind of nice person to be around sometimes. So yeah, it's um, an interesting yeah, balance. I, I, I've, I've been called out for my lack of empathy when my wife says something that's bad. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. She always, <laughs> she, she says, I'm sorry to hear that. Now, now it is when I say something, she says, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But like in a very sarcastic way, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah ew. What what do you want me to say? I'm sorry yeah. to hear that, right? Yeah, oh, it's good sorry, from her. At least he gets at least he gets back at you for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I was wondering that through throughout swimming, did you learn any lessons or develop certain skills that you think were helpful at the start of your poker career? Uh, I think like the the one thing um, which I I was until very recently I thought I was very good at um uh, is the fact that swimming it kind of is about pushing through pain levels, basically like pushing through pain thresholds and always that you have more in the tank than you believe you, you have. And like, you realize that you can go harder than you thought you could um, and achieve like more than you thought you could through the pain barrier. Cause so much of it is kind of hitting that, that I think it's called the lactate threshold or whatever, where like your muscles are completely burning and then keeping going, like not breathing because breathing and swimming in sprints is very bad. Like if you breathe, you lose time. Um, so like you think you've run out of oxygen, but you can keep your head under the water and try as hard as you can for another 10 meters. So you get to the end, you know? Um, and like this, I think is, is very good just for kind of self-belief because you achieve something you didn't think you could. And then you start to believe that you can achieve other things that you didn't think you could. But I would say uh, one, one thing, like I think I even posted about on Twitter recently. One thing I, I, I don't like the idea of thinking there wasn't any light bulb moment. I wasn't like swimming one day and I was like, wow, like this, this makes me realize I can believe in myself. It's more like a kind of holistic thing that, pushing myself more in my youth in these things, which obviously I have my parents to be thankful for, um, probably gave me more self-belief than if I hadn't done competitive sport in my youth. Uh, because like, yeah, you, you just get used to this idea that you're going to achieve stuff that you didn't think you could and you can you can go further than you think you can. Um, so yeah, yeah no I individual guess, I, moment. I, but. Yeah, but I guess indeed like that, that 
uh, that experience that when you once you put a lot of time into something that you can actually grow in something. I kind of the growth mindset, right? Oh, in the beginning, I might, I, you know, I sucked at swimming, but I put it more time. I was consistent and therefore I progressed. And then I guess you took that mindset and saw poker as something like, hey, well, if I do the same thing as I did in swimming, then I guess it will progress. Whereas other players are more, they sit down, you know, they didn't play well. They're like, well, I guess I suck at this game, right? It's a different yeah. type of mindset. Yeah, 100%. I agree. And I think, yeah, just have to be, it, it's, it's, it's definitely a lot of luck with upbringing because like, yeah, my parents were like always encouraged me to do sports, et cetera. And um, it's not like I, I had much choice in the matter myself, but obviously like you, like you said, I think it's definitely contributes a lot to how you perceive yourself as like a younger adult into and, and the decisions you make as a result of that. You mentioned that you grew up in a relatively poor neighborhood in the UK. And due to that, you were always thinking of different ways that you could make money in the future, especially, I guess, alternative ways, right? You you ended yeah. up playing poker. In the end, you decided on poker, and I'm curious to hear why that was. But first, I'm curious what other ways of making money you thought of or maybe even tried. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, like, I would qualify poor with, like, yeah, like, poor. Um, my, we, we never had a huge amount of money. My parents were very, very good at managing the money, so I never really felt super poor. Uh, as only as I kind of grew older, I realized that the area I'm from wasn't, like, like, once I started to like, see the rest of what I realized it wasn't such a like affluent area um, and like compare stories about school and stuff um, to other people. Um, but yeah, it was always kind of not, not like starving on the streets or anything at any point. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, yeah. We're talking relatively poor standards in the UK, right? We're not talking yeah. about. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. I just think compared to, I think I was listening to other stories on the podcast and I was like, yeah, it's not quite the same, but, um, but yeah, I was always like very driven to kind of make money. My, my parents also never gave me any money um, at all. And I think that contributed it too. So I, I always had a paper round from like a very young age um, where I was like going before school, the days I wasn't swimming, uh, delivering papers um, and sometimes not delivering the papers and hiding them in bins and stuff like this, but uh, getting some money for this. And then um, the other scheme I had is I used to buy uh, moldy packs of Coca-Cola bottles and... Um, sell them in school because there was a big thing in the uk where some guy get they used to sell coca-cola in the school in the canteens and then a guy made like a health campaign um where he said you can't do this anymore and this was obviously a big opportunity for entrepreneurs like myself to go and um supply the coca-cola cans to everyone uh so i used to buy them before school and then resell them at like um markup and it was actually a lot of money i was making like five pound a day when i was 12 which is a lot um but I got put out of business because someone else in my school decided he could just steal the Coca-Cola cans from the shop instead of buying them. And then he was undercutting me, like selling them like half the price. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was good for a while. Uh, but then, yeah, I, crime, crime was paying off too much for the other guy and I didn't want to get into the, the shoplifting business. So. Uh, smart, smart career choice. Let, let's try to keep it on, on the legal path. So how did you mm. then, in the end, you know, after after your uh, your Coca Cola business, <laughs> how in the end did you get in touch with poker, and why did you then think that like, hey, this is something that is a good opportunity to make money? Yeah, so we were um, playing like when I was like fifteen, I guess. We started playing home games after school. Like some people got into it, and then we were playing. I actually didn't get into it. Uh, like they were playing the games, and I finally came along after one. Well the first game we played, I literally lost a hundred percent of hands. I remember this. I like bust and rebought, bust and rebought, and, and didn't win any hands at all. Um, and these games, they were, they were bizarre. Like we were playing these like five pound sitting goes, which is very big stakes for a 15 year old. Like the winning player would get like a hundred pound. Um, and like there was one card which was marked, for example, 
and everyone knew it was marked. Um, so like the king of king of clubs, everyone knew when they had it. And um, yeah, but like then when new first came, we just thought it was fine. Like no, we didn't tell them. So it was like ethically dubious that when like new player comes, he's like obviously the worst. And he also doesn't know that everyone knows he has a king of clubs. Um, and then there was all kinds of mad stuff that went on. I remember one time we found on the tape on the floor, we were like in a sit and go. It started with ten players, it was down to Lesbury, and we found a card on the floor. And we were like, what do we do now? We had to like call the floor over to make a ruling, but the floor was just the most popular kid in the game. And he said, um, he said, but like this card's on the floor, so the whole game's void because the whole thing would have been different, you know? Uh, so that the, it was down to the last three players and we just chopped the whole pot amongst everyone, including the guys who had all bust already. Um, but yeah, I started playing these games and it went badly at first. And then I started to like decide I didn't want to lose money and also you could make a lot of money. So, and, and my opponents, they weren't particularly strong, um, I would say. So, but that's something that, that you so you did realize that there was a certain strategic aspect to it because I guess you know most people would just be like yeah okay uh, it's about whoever gets good cards I lost all my money this game sucks but you were like hmm, interesting I lost a lot but I guess I have some sort of influence how and they these guys seem bad but in order to judge that they are bad you must first gain some sort of knowledge I assume yeah I think I was already on like two plus two and deuces cracked like pretty early because I was getting so tilted about losing the money and. If you bust first, you have to go buy fish and chips from the shop for everyone else as well and stuff like this. So like there was big incentives to get better. And um, yeah, so I started on two plus two and I started to realize like that there was another thing. I actually specifically remember, I uh, maybe I posted this handle, someone else posted it on two plus two when I was reading it. We used to think when the board had two pair on it, so it was like queen, queen, jack, jack, black, uh, blank. Like we thought ace was the nuts because someone learned that like, we learned that like ace kicker plays on two pair boards. And so, like, it would get to the river and it would be, like, raise, re-raise, re-raise. And someone would be like, yeah, I've got the ace. Like, slam it down the table. And the other guy would be like, oh, man, I've got the king. For God's sake, like, lost my stack again. And I read a hand that was like this. And, like, someone had a boat. And then the two plus two club was like, you should fold. Like, someone had the jack. And it was, like, four bet on the river. And uh, someone said fold. And I was like, this was a light bulb moment for me. I was like, hang on. Like, maybe we've got these thresholds, like, incorrect um, in this in these games. So, yeah, and after that i started to like learn pre-flop ranges and stuff and that was enough to like do really well and then uh randomly started playing online on an account in my dad's name and went from there okay now i was not going to mention anything because you mentioned 70 years old that was like hmm, probably a little bit below the the league weight so <laughs> yeah, it gave nah. you an extra year of advantage over the rest so uh yeah. uh, uh yeah. you then played throughout university if i understood correctly Next to your uh, next to your university, you were playing poker. You yeah. mentioned that um, this helped you in your mental game afterwards. Once you had your university degree, what what do you mean with that? How does it help you with your mental game? Yeah, I think um, the um, for me, I, I, I'm definitely on the nittier side in general. I, I attribute some of it to my background, maybe just some of it to how. I've always been like a lot more kind of like scared of going broke basically um, because I like, yeah, I just always want the freedom to kind of choose to do what I do and um, having the degree and like finishing it, uh, it was like from a reasonably good university in the UK and a reasonably good subject. Um, at least it just helped me to have a lot more comfortable. Like when, when poker was going badly, I was like, well, I'm, I'm like studying as well, you know, like I'm going to end up with something where I can get a career if I need to from off the back of it. Um, so yeah, it was. I never really thought about not finishing my degree. Uh, I always thought it was like important to me. Yeah, because you mentioned that throughout your university, you know, you were making like 50, 80K a year. That's quite a lot of money. Like a lot of people, me included, would be like, hey, 
this 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 sounds good this is what i'm going to do like i can i can do my i can take with this job but it's not going to pay the same or you know yeah. and i enjoy this way more i'm sitting by my computer playing playing a game of cards how did you yeah. stay sane i think i was like uh, uh, it's a lot of it is luck obviously like uh, well luck you could say luck or bad luck maybe it would have gone better for me if i had dropped out but um I was like very early on, like with Pyo, like I was one of, I must've been one of the earliest people to use it. And given that I should have maybe done better, but I was lost in a lot of bad rabbit holes. But anyway, um, once this came out and I was obviously studying a lot of game theory in university as well, um, I was like quite convinced that poker was in its death throes. I didn't really understand the game well enough to to realize that it would, wouldn't die. Um, so for this reason, I was like, yeah, like I'm not gonna push the at high stakes. I'm just gonna bank the money I can make now and then like obviously then i'll just kind of leave leave with my my winnings and and um because i think that now the pyro silver and it was even when i remember when poker snowy came out i was like right, this is it then i guess they did backgammon now they're doing now, now it's game over for poker as well um so yeah like this was a lot of what made me finish my degree i was like poker's not going to be around so I need to have some kind of backup and obviously knowing what i know now i've realized how flawed my thinking was like because Obviously, I know now that playing like Pyro isn't the best way to win, best way to win money. But um, back then, I thought it was just a case that everyone's going to be replicating Pyro perfectly. Bots are going to be replicating Pyro perfectly. No one's going to win. Interesting. We will we, we, we will get back to that thought. I wanted to now first hand it over to Adam. Adam, uh, you have shared your uh, your story of packing your bags, going to Thailand, having three, I think, like three months of of budget and trying to make it as a poker player. When you did that, did you have some sort of safety net or a certain degree that you could fall back on and did that help you take that risk? Well, I just graduated from university. I say just, it was a year previously. I was booming around my parents' house, working a part-time job. And to be honest, my prospects were looking great. I had a degree in sports science, which good good on paper, but as I was trying to find jobs, there was just kind of nothing around, although it was too competitive. And every time a job came available, it was 80 applications. And again, the interview was hard, hard enough. So I ended up just falling into like really easy jobs. So when I said to play poker, it was either I make this work, I'll come back, back to my parents' house and figure out the next move, which would have been something very unambitious. So uh, yeah, in terms of having a degree, I definitely didn't feel it as it was going to help me or that it was going to guide me through. It did give me a little bit of kind of confidence in myself that I could finish things. I think university and one of the reasons it kind of helps you get jobs is it shows to the employer that you can stick at something for three plus years and commit yourself to something. So even getting through the degree, I could tell myself, oh yeah, I've got some sort of sticking power to kind of learn and get better. So that's allowed me to go into poker with like, okay, I'm not an idiot. I, may, I should be able to pick this up. Some people might quit at this. I've got a bit of resilience to, to keep going, even though it gets tough. So that was kind of the, the, main, the main kind of fallback. But yeah, once you get into poker, you kind of realize, oh, it's kind of make a break. You've got to find your own path. And once you start with poker, I feel like everything else seems very unappealing. I'm really curious to know how you were able to uh, play poker through university when you're making like 50 to 80K. So if I remember my university career, basically I'm showing up to lectures most days of the week and no one really cares if I show up. There's certain lectures that I can miss if I want to. Exams come around and coursework comes around. And basically you're a self-learner, a self-directed learner who's got to uh, find a way to study, find a way to put coursework in and show up for exams. You've got the option to go on your computer and make, let's go with five to 10K a month playing poker. How the hell did you manage to one show up at university and two uh, not fail your exams? Yeah, yeah. It's like, um, I, I, I actually didn't go to a, any lectures from my first year onwards, I'll be honest with you, um, where I, I definitely have this problem a bit. I will say that 
I maybe I think my best year was like 70k if I recall correctly in uni and it was like variance around there like kind of 40 to, to that amount um if I recall correctly but I um basically like yeah I, I, like like you said university I think for me it was very very hard actually uh, and I even now I, I still have like dreams sometimes where I wake up and I'm like I've got my exams coming up I haven't learned anything yet and like I know I've got to do them it's like the, it's actual PTSD I think from this but um yeah, basically my tactic was because because my course was economics and there was no coursework, it was all exams. Um actually there was one piece of coursework and I literally I literally remember I received an email where the lecturer was like, Oh yeah, the coursework deadline's been extended by one by one week. And front it was supposed to be in tomorrow and now you got one week. And I, I didn't even know that we had any coursework at all. So when I got this the email, I was like, Thank God for that. Unbelievable um sun run. Um but yeah, we had the way it works is we had six hours of exam sorry six three hour exams so 18 hours of exams in total every year at the end of the year um and the way i would do it is i would self-ban from all the poker websites a month before this and then go to the library and and take some um some study drugs or whatever and just just literally just be in the library the whole time like learning the course and also the the, the exams i did the same for my a levels as well um i didn't go to school through well through the second year of a levels at least I was doing the same thing and all the exams in, in England, I mean, I'm assuming it's similar to you, they're kind of gameable, where they give you an option to be able to answer like one of these three questions. And you can, um, you can like, obviously what a lot of people learn the whole module because they think they're in university to learn, which is obviously the correct way to go about it. But I was like, I've got limited time, I've got one month. So the first thing I'm going to do is write down like all the options that can come up and work out how much of it I can just not learn at all. Um, and then go from there and, and there were definitely some exams I went into like last year was so insane like I didn't have time at all there were some exams I went into where I had like a five percent chance I'd open the paper and I wouldn't actually know like anything at all so it was like the biggest sweat I'd like walk into the exam flip over the paper and there was so much relief when I was like what one of these questions I can actually answer um but yeah it was it was not like I was kind of in university for like two months of the year every year in winter and um in in summer and like uh, my girlfriend at the time was like bringing me meals in the library I was like waking up at 7am taking one of these um modafinil pills and then like going to the library at 8am leaving at 10pm so it wasn't a great way to live and it's probably no wonder that I still have like some some um stress from it but it worked out okay in the end the university crash course yeah I can relate to that I had lots of periods of the year where I was just completely cruising I did go to lectures like most weeks and I had coursework throughout the year but like yeah. you said like those exam periods are just like really intense it's like two weeks to a month of I think it's study leave I think I remember it's sort of study leave maybe I did yeah. skip and you really just live in the library just non-stop just studying the material and like you said you haven't got you haven't got time to get to learn a year's worth of textbooks and materials so you've got to kind of hedge your bets I love how you said the exams are game gameable uh, only a poker player could ever try to gamify the um the exam system but yeah you find out basically like going through old exam papers I used to get all the old papers yeah right. yeah which questions are coming up over and over and yeah like sometimes you, you go into an exam and you're like okay I know about 20% of the course material here. I'm hedging my bets that this is definitely going to come up and you're flicking through going, multiple choice. Yes, there it is. Like, I know this one. And other times I can pitch up in exams going, I do not even know what the question means. I can <laughs> yeah. back this up. I'm just going to start writing. Uh, this is definitely a retake because I'm feeling this one. So yeah, I can relate to that uh, very, very strongly. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, I just want to circle back before we continue the story. You mentioned that uh, you got good at pushing through the pain during swimming, but you said until recently, so I, something was to happen sometime recently that made you question whether you're still good at pushing with the pain. So could we, could you tell me what happens to feel like you, you're not as good at pushing yeah, the pain? Yeah, yeah, it, it, It's more of a trivial thing, really, but it's a, it's a funny story. Anyway, we, we, me and my housemates, we started going to this, like, we started going to hot yoga, um, firstly. 
And that was like, all right, it was pretty hard. It's like yoga, but in a room that's heated to 40 degrees. And then we saw there was a class called Inferno Hot Pilates, all right? And we were like, this sounds interesting. Um, what, what can this be? Because I've done Pilates when I was a kid, and it's not really like the words Inferno and Hot don't really go with Pilates because it's like chilled, like stretching class. So my housemate went once and he was like, yeah, you've got to come to this, mate. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. Um, so I went to it and and like me and me and Daryl also came along and a couple of girls we know. And it's like, it's like nothing I've ever done, done before. It's like 40 degree room, but everyone's like packed together side by side. It's such a popular class and it's hip training. So you're like constantly like doing like, like, like no rest for an hour in between these workouts and your heart, I can't breathe after like 30 minutes, my heart rate's going. And, and what I mean is that like, I always fought in sport that I was very, very good, like at pushing through thresholds because I was doing a lot of long distance running, like at 5Ks and stuff like this. Um, and and the same with swimming. But then when I'm in this class, there's just there's just times where I just can't carry on. I look I look over to my right and there'll be like like a, a girl who's like got a lot less muscles, it would appear at least than than I do. And she'll just be like absolutely smashing through the exercise, like not even struggling at all, uh, and like just just like breathing perfectly. And then there'll be other guys who are like completely dead, but they're just still doing it whilst I'm on the floor and like a, like a corpse in a heat. Um, so yeah, it just made me realize there's always like other levels, obviously, um, that you can go to and obviously would quite like to get to those levels. Not sure if I will, but yeah, more of a funny yeah. story. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to like that being very tough. I, I do a lot of saunas at the moment. And I kind of push myself to kind of the failure point. I'm not throwing weights around, not doing anything high intensity in there, but yeah, I think your, your heat tolerance is very trainable and there's a lot of variance amongst people's heat tolerance so like the girl next to you who's smashing through the workout she's probably got a higher threshold for like getting to high temperatures and not i want to say the brain overheats at certain temperatures and there's gonna be like a shutdown effect in the body where you just you can't push through it so yeah maybe you're just not adapted to the heat i'm trying to give you an escape card here yeah yeah i'll take i'll take it <laughs> the mental toughness is there it was just the heat that was the limited factor but yeah there's the certain things like i feel like my tolerance for pain because i did militants running like 10 years my tolerance of pain is really good when I kind of push in the body, but sometimes you put me out of my environment of what I'm used to pushing in. I'm like, oh, these thresholds are not what I'm used to. And I feel like I can't push as much as I want to. So yeah, I think even yeah. mental toughness, resilience, it, you need a degree of like confidence in your ability to push through that pain. If you're used to the pain, like swimming, or for me it was running. If I'm used to like what the pain thresholds feel like, I know where I am and I know where to push through those. If it's a complete anomaly, let's say uh, you throw you in a frozen lake and you haven't adapted to cold before, all of a sudden you're like, oh, am I going to die? Is this too much? So uh, yeah, even then different environments, you can yeah, struggle to, to push yourself as much. Yeah, I know you could obviously bring this back to poker as well, right? Like it's like, if I play tournaments, like I, I hope I'm like possibly being like a random 5K WCOOP main, but it's much more stressful because I don't know, do you know what I mean? Like uh, uh, compared to like the games you play day in, day out. So yeah, I think it's definite analogies and, and I definitely agree with you as well. So when university was over for you, did you decide to go straight into poker full time or what were your options at that moment? So you've just managed to somehow juggle poker and get a degree. You've ticked that degree box and now your kind of career paths are opening up in terms of going into professional jobs or poker has been going really well. How did you go for that phase and what was the kind of options that you you chose? Yeah, I think like I, I always had um, this plan to go traveling after university because I hadn't ever been outside Europe before. So, well, actually I've been to New Zealand once, but um whilst I was in university but I, I was planning to travel for a year basically all along um but then at this point I was skiing competitively like in England which is very low standard for anyone who skis so I was doing like freestyle skiing but like it, it was like we, I was good for English standards very bad by international standards um and yeah I was like throwing my body around like doing these flips and spins and stuff and then eventually obviously I um got injured so I, I snapped my ACL LCL all, all three of my knee ligaments and this was just before my final exams in university. 
um, and basically meant I couldn't travel for the year because a lot of the reason I wanted to travel was to ski in Canada and stuff. So I had a year after university, which was kind of dead time, where I decided, well, obviously I may as well play poker. Makes sense. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't playing that seriously. I was like playing, but not 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 like I was playing a lot of hours, but I wouldn't say I was treating it professionally like I do now. I'm mostly just saving up money to travel uh, with my then girlfriend after this year was over. Um, so yeah, the whole goal for that year was like play poker so I can travel the world for a year afterwards. And then after that, it will be job, job o'clock um, was always the kind of plan um, for, the, for the whole time, yeah. So even at this phase, you're not really singing poker as your long-term career. Even though you had success for university, uh, it's still almost like a, a side thing. Keep you going, make some money. Yeah. I mean, fixed on, on traveling, even at this phase. A hundred percent, yeah. And I, I think like, honestly, never, at, at no point really did I think that I was going to play poker like as my main main job at this age when I was like 22, 23. And I even remember when I went to Canada and I was like in the ski season and I was like still playing poker to make cash. Like all the guys I was living with were like working part-time jobs in pizza shops and stuff like that. And they obviously talked to me about my plans, uh, my very good friends at the time. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go and get a job in like strategy consultant or something afterwards. And they were all like, we all think you're mad by the way, because like you've got this, like you're doing this, you're like living the dream. And, and like, why would you want to like give that up and go back and get a job when you have the choice to carry on living the dream? But even when they said this, I was like, yeah, well, this is my plan. You know, I, it, I don't know why it's never really like, I, I think it's because I was so convinced that, the game wasn't going to be around um even though there was like a lot of evidence to the contrary like i was in skype groups with lions who spent 200 zoom and i was playing 200 zoom and then like six months later he's like playing otb um heads up and stuff like this and i, I should have surely seen this and like adjusted but i was so anchored to this idea that the game was like kind of going to be done um at that age that it probably cost me a lot but then yeah i think uh, it goes both ways like a lot of good things happened as a result of it as well so but yeah, definitely didn't really believe that I could play properly um, in the long, long term at that stage. Yeah. So this phase of your singing poker is like a very short term thing. You think the games are going to die and they're not going to be around for very long. You think it was the writing's on the wall and it's pointless um, kind of putting much energy into this long term pursuit because it's going to be closed off. In terms of how you're approaching poker this time, did that not create some urgency to try and kind of capitalize on the games whilst they were there? I picture myself in conversations back in like 2014, 2015, like, all right, this is the last good year of poker. Let's, let's yeah. really smash it in. I'm so sure every poker player has had this conversation with friends. And that, for me, created a lot of urgency. I was like, right, max volume, play enough, because next year it's probably going to be gone. Did it drive you to want to play more? Or did you more, like, approach it a bit more lighthearted? Yeah, I, I was I was playing. I always played quite a lot of volume. I think even, even now, I think I play a lot more volume than, like, uh, most people at my stakes. But, um, yeah, back then I was playing a lot. But I, I wasn't really, like, pushing myself to move up the stakes. I think this was the thing. And I was also doing a lot of coaching like I, I actually I feel like I my win rate was quite high I had like quite good strategies I think looking back but I watched like I watched a video recently myself and I was surprised by like I thought I'd be playing awfully but like I wasn't that bad um but yeah I was just I was just playing loads of volume at 200 and L basically and not really pushed like playing a bit of 500 and not really ever considering even playing higher um because I thought like I also had this attitude which held me back a lot where I thought that people even despite being in the group I was where like a lot of my group were already having like this insane success at, high, success at high stakes where I kind of thought because poker is such like an open market where anyone in the world can sit down and play and have the opportunity to make millions I was like they must be really really good like all along I was like if if you can sit at this 1k table for example and make 200 300k a year um like the players who are there they must just be good because if everyone has this opportunity like it kind of natural selection should mean that the ones who are doing it are, are really really good and and like i still 
this is I, I still think this is true and you have to respect the games you play because like is a true meritocracy in the eu markets like anyone can come and play um but obviously it's like i think i underestimated myself underestimated myself a bit basically i was like i was probably like quite good as well as them and, and obviously like we all know people even the guys who are very very good like i still think to beat 1k now you are like very good relatively speaking um they still make a lot of mistakes in terms compared to like optimal play or um or, or like elite play so yeah that held me back a lot this belief that everyone was a lot better than they were for sure um i even remember i skype messaged linus actually we didn't speak much because I, I i i thought linus was very bad as well when he was in the skype group with me yeah but like I, it was obviously just, I was like awful awful myself and he'd post his hands where he's playing so aggressively and I'd be like come on mate you're, you're so out of line and like then obviously he stopped posting the Skype group for obvious reasons uh it's like a 200 zoom group I think Big Blind Bets was in there as well and I had a big argument with him telling him that his play was bad um when uh but yeah I was like obviously anchored in my own beliefs and they were wrong um but I even remember messaging him being like yo mate it's so sick that you're playing these heads up matches but watch out like obviously OTP he's like supposed to be good <laughs> and like he was like yeah man I'm absolutely loving it I don't even care if I lose I just like love playing every day against him um and yeah it's just completely different mindset and and, and like yeah I, I didn't know at all how bad I was at this state well I kind of I obviously did because I didn't push myself to play higher so it was a double end double-edged sword where I was like yeah like everyone above me must be really good also like I must know better than like the other people who actually actually know in real life and yeah it was bad mental game stuff I think looking back Mm. But it sounds like you've got a lot of stuff going on there where one, you're kind of limiting yourself from going higher. One, because you think the game's on, it's going to be good for long enough. And also because you're kind of putting everything on a pedestal and you're thinking that they're very, very good relatively or they must have some sort of amazing skill level to get to the level they're at. So you're almost like playing things safe a little bit and you're almost like trying to um, hold people back as well, going, right, look, you guys don't, don't play on TV. So trying to put your yeah. beliefs on them sort of thing. But at the same time, obviously, you're, you're playing a lot. Uh, you're probably not doing yourself a you're probably doing yourself a disservice by saying that you were a rubbish player because obviously it's relative to the games at those times. Obviously, I think everyone looked back six, seven years ago, they could find a lot of um, really bad player. Yeah. You did a good win rate, you were doing lots of coaching. You probably had the skill level to progress further if you, you wanted to at that stage. Every obviously you said you were limiting yourself and holding yourself back. So this led you to yeah, to play podcast here, not all out, and go traveling. So talk us through uh, what you learned about yourself going traveling, where did you explore? What was the kind of why did you feel like you wanted to uh, put poker on hold and go traveling or did you manage to uh, to grind as you were, as you were traveling yeah I, I think like for me it, it was always like very important to like see travel uh, like I, I think I was always like had this kind of and I read so much I read a lot when I was a kid and I always had this kind of image which I, I still believe I guess where it's like a lot of life is like how much uh, enjoyment you get basically and like the more experiences and like the more you see the more like fun things you do like the better your life is so I was like want to make sure my life has a lot of Fun, fun things in there um so yeah like when I was in university I did a ski season in New Zealand in the summer and stuff like this and was like uh supposedly playing poker there but not so much I think I was doing a, a coaching for profits of Ishtar 1-1 um at the time I was coaching him as like my main my main source of um poker but yeah anyway after, after university I was traveling I did a ski season in Canada which was really really good absolutely loved it um in Whistler um and then after that, we went to, um, before we were in the United States, like traveling around California, uh, climb, doing some climbing, hiking, et cetera. And then uh, went to um, through Asia afterwards, which, yeah, I, it's tough to say I really learned much. Like, I think I I definitely saw like a lot of cultures, which I just had absolutely no idea about. You also see like the, how how far the extremes go in the world, you know, from like San Francisco. Like I, um, I was actually coaching a guy who worked at Google. He was a live recreational player. And he invited us to the offices at Google in San Francisco uh, 
me and my girlfriend at the time when we were there and that was like obviously insane like the, the facilities they have there like hairdresser and living in like cinema uh in the offices and stuff like all this free stuff and then going to Cambodia afterwards obviously which is the other end of the spectrum and seeing like and visiting like the war museums there and like seeing how how like polar the world is I think that's that, that's the biggest thing I learned I guess like um yeah and also just kind of the belief again that like you can go to all these places and like look after yourself you know and go on all these adventures like do all these uh like hikes and climbs and stuff like this and not die but some survivor bias maybe there as well yeah i think traveling gives you like a broader perspective of life and the human experience overall we often live in our own bubbles and the people around us are somewhat similar obviously there's differences once you go like across the world to asia or to south america and you see like kind of the poverty divide but you also see the different nature and culture of people it just makes you realize oh wait a second like there's so much variety of people in the world and often the problem what i generally realize when i go to uh the kind of less well-off places is I realize how fortunate I am to live the life I have and like all the opportunities that I had were really by luck by being born in the UK right age. and I look around and go wow these people like really don't have much of a chance to uh progress from their situation yes obviously there's there's definitely an opportunity to do something but they're they're they can't sort, sort, sort of tied but at the same time I always find in Asia I, I live in Bali right now some of like the poorest people I meet are the happiest people. Like they're so happy, like the rice field workers, the people who work in my local shop who like make like very minimum wage, smiling, happy. They'll give you the shit off their back if you wanted it. Um, and yeah, it gives you this kind of perspective where you're like, wait a second, I'm chasing all this money achievement stuff. And these guys seem to be super happy with nothing. Maybe I'm missing something here. Is there, like a, is there something like more to, uh, more to life? So yeah, I think it gives you a, a clear perspective, but also a, a wider lens of what it's like to be human. And yeah, it's, it's a... Worth doing for anyone. I think anyone could travel if they get an opportunity should find some time traveling. Yeah, 100% agree. And it's just, it's, yeah, this general idea is something I, I thought a lot about in my life as well. Like, yeah, like obviously, firstly, like the fact that we're here now playing, like, I think there's like a lot of, so much of it is attributable to the luck. Like, for me, it's like the people I met, like, even the fact that when I first started playing poker online, I was probably getting very lucky, you know, like, I think most people who keep playing, like, when you, when you start playing, you're a fish and like, if you just, if you run bad, if you're a fish and you run bad you just, it's just not fun you just get so destroyed you probably never log on to the client again um whereas like i was like winning tournaments when i was like obviously literally a losing player so definitely some attribute to like being around just still luck and then and then the second half what you said as well just this idea like experience is so subjective and and like you can like achieve all your goals but if you keep like pushing to be like in richer circles or whatever you're never gonna you're always gonna feel subjectively poor and like, not happy and then yeah like you said you can see these families that have what we would consider nothing but like they're much happier and like who's the real winner at the end of the day in this in this in this game if that's the way uh, to think yeah. about it yeah it makes you a deep reflection isn't it when you're, you're thinking you go wow like they're happier than me and for, by my standards they've got like nothing and i'm like how have you done that like who's winning here like it's funny kind of a thought exercise to do who's winning the game of life here and you assume yeah. nobody like the some form of achievement at least or something that you can like, lie on so yeah it's very interesting to see that and i think it's as a human, it's really good to have wider, like you've been talking about, lots of experiences to first get to know yourself, what you like, what you enjoy, but also to, yes, get a bigger perspective of life and what happiness looks like, what it's, what the whole journey of life that we're all trying to wing along and what, what it's all about. So yeah, very interesting. All right, cool. So I wanted to add to the story to uh, when you got back from traveling and around this time, this is when you said you decided to go full-time and really start your professional career. So first question is, what changed that made you think now I can go professional? I think it's around 2018 by now. What changed? Why did you feel like this was the moment that you could actually pursue it when previously you were thinking it wasn't going to be a long-term option? Yeah, so there was actually one gap between us. So when I actually got back from traveling, um, I was still in the job mode, right? And I um, <clears throat> applied to a few jobs and got like 
at the time it was like quite a quite a promising job uh it was like consulting with uh, a, a big firm and I actually did this for eight months so I actually did that went went to work there for eight months and then it was like when I was working there I was like mate maybe I was maybe I was wrong all along and, and like um the like corporate life is not not what I wanted after all and then um yeah it was kind of like it the first couple of months were absolutely amazing and I was like learning so much and um like really enjoyed it like social life is so good as well through this company um and like the salary was all right it was nothing compared to poker but like for for, for normal jobs and quotation marks good um but then it was kind of the, the fact that like I realized firstly that I was like good at this consulting I think relatively but nowhere near as good as I was at poker so I realized like all these years I'd put into like getting good at poker like worth something um like I was kind of like top let's say top 1000 in the world would be like a comfortable way to say at cash at that point and at consulting I was probably like top 2 million or something and I was like so that that's worth something and then also it was really frustrating like the corporate nonsense basically and like the lack of um like in poker if you think you're better you go and sit with someone and like if you're better you you on the long term at least supposedly win in consulting it's like if you think you're better you like grind for for like three years you like make sure you're friends with all the right people make sure you try and do the right thing and then maybe you might get promoted uh, and then you'll probably still be at that point actually technically good enough to do the next role above and you've got to start the whole process again and it's very frustrating like the lack of um meritocracy like yeah like the, it's more about like what you do and who you know than and how well you do it in a lot of the consulting world um, so you sampled the corporate life and you realized it wasn't quite a fit for you like you said the first few months were very exciting then you got into all the um, politics and the leveling up through connections and you could see basically it wasn't what you envisioned at least when you're at university and going down a career path so then you've got the option okay do I keep pursuing this or do I quit this job and go professionally how were you weighing up this choice point did you give yourself a uh, kind of time frame to make the decision did you quit your job and go to poker talk us about this transition from the full-time job to start poker yeah, I, I, I think I, I remember it quite well, actually. I went to visit, um, I spoke a bit to my parents, and then I went to visit Donald D7, uh, for anyone who doesn't know him, he's like mid-stage cash grinder, well, high-stage cash grinder uh, back then, and um, founded BitB originally. And I went to speak to him in Edinburgh, because I was living uh, in Newcastle, like traveling between Newcastle and London. Um, and we had a chat, and we were like, oh, yeah, like, I was like, what if I did come back, like, what could we do together with, like, this bit B business he'd started, which was a, at the time it was uh, a group of staking a few cash in players, coaching a few cash in players for profit. I was like, yeah, could we like expand this? Would you like be prepared to give me a piece of the business? Like these are the stuff I think I can bring to it. Cause I have learned something in consulting um, less now than I thought, I guess, but at the time I was convinced that my, I'd learned a lot there. Um, and I was like, yeah, um, can we, can we like make some kind of deal here? Uh, and I'll be like all in if I, if I give up, cause I'll be giving up this like corporate career, you know, now. And it's not like, I want you playing poker. I wasn't a fast. And he was like, super keen for it he was like yeah really, we were both like really hyped to get started um and also I had such a drive because I was giving up I was playing poker whilst I was consulting still and making like the same amount of money well that's not quite true but similar amounts playing like one hour 200 zoom a day um running very very well as it turned out but um yeah like I just had much much more fire then because I like I'd also just ended a relationship my ex-girlfriend she wasn't so keen on uh, poker <laughs> And I was like, suddenly, like, really, really had the fire to be like, yeah, if I'm if I'm quitting this consulting job, I'm I'm gonna like go all in uh, on poker. And there were some interactions in the consulting job as well. I was like, this is the line, mate. I'm like, I'm just quitting. And I, I think I went to see Donald one weekend in Edinburgh, and then on on the Sunday I left Edinburgh, came back to Newcastle, and I handed in my notice uh, that that Monday. So it was like a fairly quick decision uh, once I decided to do it because 
yeah, I was just done with showing up to this, showing up to this office, honestly. Sounds like a quick final decision, but the kind of stars were aligning for a period of time. And yeah, I felt yeah. like everything that was in your way of pursuing poker more full time kind of became, but we moved out of the way. The girlfriend who wasn't supportive, even our friend who was really passionate about it, who's got ideas. The career job itself isn't as glamorous as you wanted it to be. So everything's like kind yeah. of pushing you towards towards playing poker now. All right, so now we're starting your full-time career and we're a professional career, we'll call it. And you said you had two months of break even at 200 NL and you had to do a lot of soul searching over this time. So first of all, why was this first two months so challenging for you? And what sort of soul searching did you need to do to come through it? Yeah, so so like whilst I was in consoling, I was winning like a ridiculous win uh, for given how my ability, I think like I was playing like only two hundred zoom, which e even even though that now obviously you say like two hundred zoom easy game, I, I still think relatively it's tough compared to the regular tables, etc. Obviously a bad decision to play in the first place, but I was um, winning like eight BB whilst I was consulting for like a reasonable sample, then quit and and I instantly won loads of money. I was like, wow, what a great decision this was. Uh, I was up like ten k, fifty buy-ins in the first. Um, like eight days of the month where I, when I went full-time and I was doing so much stuff as well to try and build up this bit B business like coaching like streaming on my study sessions etc and I instantly lost it all back so I ended up like loop break even for the month um and then the month after I lost again as well month after lost again as well so it was like break even in December after being up so much then losing in February and January the net amount probably wasn't that much but like when I'd given up this like salary and suddenly I was like losing it was like really probably the most difficult time I had in my whole career actually where I was like really questioning like is this like was this a terrible decision all along like maybe I'm just so much worse than I thought I was but at the same time I was like I have to make it work so I was like really trying to improve harder than I'd ever tried this time and I, I remember me and Donald went for a walk on some like mountains near Edinburgh and we were like talking it through and he was like we, it was like really positive for me as well like to have this support from him at this time as well where we were like talking it through and we were like look obviously you can win in these games like there's stuff you can do to make you win more um and then yeah after that stage it was kind of uh like obviously very lucky because it like variance has no memory it could not have turned around uh but after that stage it kind of went up only for quite a while um and like yeah it was very nice for me as well because and, and again lucky it did because you start to get this feedback loop where it's like I, I was doing badly i tried really hard to study and then start doing well and you start to really believe that studying is good which it, which it is, but um, obviously a lot of the time you don't get this feedback loop and you give up and then like you like change your habits for the worse. So yeah, um, definitely some luck in all of the things happened as well. Um, and like, yeah, it was just just a very tough time because I started to doubt all the, decision, all the decisions I'd made, uh, kind of abandoned my big life plan and, and then it was going very badly for a while. Yeah, I think these moments in life are very key, like how you act in those moments and what kind of path you take, because often we'll make a decision and like you did to you quit your job to go into poker and you are already having success in poker on, on the side of your job. So your mind's like, all right, if I double down on poker, I can't lose. I'm going to have great success. You get tanky up, gets taken away, and then you break an even for two months. So as we're talking now, two months don't, doesn't sound like a lot, but at that moment, it probably felt like a year. Probably felt like, what yeah. is going on? How can I beat this game? Have I made the biggest mistake of my life? Do I quit it? Do I hand it all in? I think these moments are like such like a kind of fork in the road moments where obviously you had a great conversation with your friends and you just basically came back going, you know what? I want to find a way to make this work. And you double down on study and double down on your approach. I think these are kind of the key moments where other players who might have a similar opportunities to you, be in a similar situation, they might have reinforced that, wait a second, this isn't working. I'll just start looking for jobs. I might be doing something part-time to kind of ease the financial burden. Whereas you found a way to 
double down on podcasts. I think it's good to uh, reflect on that and go, yeah, this is, this is how I came out of that patch. In terms of things you did differently, did, was there anything you changed? Obviously, you said you ran a bit better, you studied a bit more. Was there anything that you had to improve on in order to get yourself a winning player in those games? I think, I, yeah, I like started to like try and like crystallize my game plan a lot more. Like I, I was, I was like, I had some like vague, I, I had a, I had a plan basically. Like I never, in all like the common spots, I knew what I was trying to do and like why I was trying to do it. But what I was doing was like very, very simple. And, and the other thing is I started, I was speaking a lot more to Daryl and stuff at this time. Obviously I'd been speaking to Daryl since I was like 16 years old, I guess. But like we were, now I was back in focus, I was speaking a lot more to him and, and Cameron. And like I started, I was playing so poorly against recreational players as well. I think this was my maybe my biggest problem. And I would like was playing Zoom all the time instead of playing regular tables, which is like giving up a, a huge amount of um, EV in the first place. So yeah, I started to like take this side of the game a lot more seriously, uh, get a lot more feedback. I was like studying with with Daryl, who was at that time, well, still is, but at that time he was like a lot, lot better than me as well. So this was like really, really helpful for me. Um, so yeah, mostly like friends, honestly. Um, and and just yeah, keep keeping showing up, I think. And like I think this period, even though it's it's nowhere obviously nowhere close to the biggest downswing I've had, nowhere close to the longest downswing I've had, but for me it's like probably the most important one because getting through that and and starting to believe afterwards that you can get through it is something I can like I start, I always came back to afterwards and um I started to really believe that like how you deal with these patches of adversity is like what dictates your long-term success and then you always have that to fall back on like even though it sucks so much in the moment when things are going badly you know that like you've just seen it as well in bit b it helps as well you have like always 20 students so you always see it that how well people act when things go badly are like probably by far the biggest determinator of how well they do in the long run and if you keep repeating that mantra for yourself, it makes it easier when things go badly for you, I think. 100% agree. And yeah, it's such a valuable life lesson that you almost just need to learn. You need to learn like, the hard way of going through a big downswing or even just a two-month downswing for you. And like, realizing, I can come out of this. I'm going to be all right. I'll figure a way. I'll figure my way out of this or various will turn around. This is not like an end point. And yeah, like I said, I think it's so interesting when you uh, speak with lots of players or work with lots of players and coaching arrangements, how players deal with adversity and how they deal with challenges very often dictates their career overall because everyone's great when they're winning. But when you have these bad patches, what happens? What? How do you approach that? Do you keep playing your, your normal game? Do you study harder? Do you go into your shell? Do more mistakes start coming to your game? Do you start down yourself? Do you start getting risk averse? Like so many things happen just from you're losing right now. Can you deal with it? And yeah, I think it's good to like reinforce yourself. Like you've been through this before. It's not just another one of those cycles, just a bit of bad variance. I know how to get out of this. I think the longer, yeah, the longer you're in poker, the more that's important because you go through prolonged stretches as you're moving up stakes, you go on your next biggest downswing of all time. And you've got to over, almost like relearn the lesson again, going, okay, can I be okay with losing? Can I just get through this patch? Can I find a way to uh, work my way through this and come to the side? So yeah, I think it's a huge, huge lesson to learn. So you mentioned that security is very important to you you plan ahead, you don't take too much risk, and you've always played overruled, therefore you've never went broke, which is definitely an upside. Where did this need for certainty come from? Where was the first time you realized, wait a second, I like security and certainty? Yeah, I'm not sure. I was like always very, very famous almost in our groups for being like uh, risk averse, which you can say is like, I mean, it's definitely not maximum EV, that's for sure, like what I've done in my career. Um, but at the same time, there's been like a lot of times where it's kind of worked out well for me for various reasons. Um, but yeah, I just think it was just always from, I always had this idea that like, uh, that I, my parents were very, very frugal how they spent their money. So I, I saw that we had like quite a nice life without much money, without much money in like global schemes, um, the global, the, the, the grand scheme of things anyway, at least. So I always kind of believed that like, 
getting to a certain dollar amount, let's say, would like allow me to be comfortable in my life. And like, if I'm comfortable in my life, I can do, pursue the things I want and be happy in my life, which is like what I wanted. Um, so I think that kind of, yeah, held me back from like risking, risk, risking like what I, what I need to go for what I don't need, if that makes sense. Um, and obviously like the number I thought I needed to have a comfortable life has, has changed as time has gone on. Um, and like I played 200 an hour for so long. I, I, I literally had almost a thousand buy-ins at some points when I was playing and, and like I definitely was too, went too far the other way. Um, but yeah, it, it all came from just this idea that like I wasn't trying to get as rich as possible basically my whole career. Um, and um, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't my goal. Um, and I didn't, and then I didn't have the belief that I could like beat 40k an hour or whatever. So like I, I wasn't trying to get there because I didn't think I could beat it. And then I didn't think I needed to get there to achieve the goals I had. So I would say that's where it came from. Yeah, I think it's an interesting kind of phase that a lot of mid-stakes players go through. When you start playing, say, 100 NL or 200 NL, all of a sudden, like, you make enough money to be comfortable. We'll call it, like, you can, your living costs are comfortable. You can live, like, the life you want in, in the short term, and there's no real kind of financial pressures. And part of you, especially if you're not from a kind of rich background or around people who have got, like, affluent uh, ambitions, all of a sudden you start going, well, I'm pretty happy with this. I don't need to be greedy. Yeah. I don't need to risk anymore. And the thought of risking this kind of comfortable, nice scenario, potentially lose at a higher stake that you're not sure if you can beat, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, whoa, I don't need to be greedy. I don't need to make millions here. I'm just, I'm happy with what I've got. I think this is a kind of limiting belief system that a lot of mid-stakes players go through. And often they limit themselves. Either they limit themselves in terms of not playing higher or they stop even thinking about the progression as a poker player because they almost like stopping themselves from taking risks to uh, potentially lose what they have. So yeah, I think it's a very interesting patch. And I think this is a, yeah, a phase that you had to go through. So in terms of poker as a cho safety choice, obviously, uh, if you're this kind of security safety first guy, poker is not really the safest option for most people. Was there any conflict there by, from playing poker? Did your kind of risk aversion ever lead you to go, wait a second, this game of poker is maybe not for me? I, I would say not really. I, I think like there, there's there's like when when I was younger, I, I think maybe since I since I got professional, as I like to say, like since I quit my job, I don't think it. That was like maybe very recently in my like nosebleeds adventures and stuff. Like I, I like doubted a bit what my approach was, but I never thought about quitting. I think that the the one time I specifically remember I was like kind of thinking maybe I should never play poker again um, was when I was in university and I, I like didn't go out on New Year because like I want to shot take six hundred an hour. I think I've told the story on on the B podcast a couple of times, but um, I'll speed run it. Where uh, so I, I quit, didn't go out partying, and I was like, I'm going to play 600 other games. It's going to be unbelievably soft, right? I'm going to like take my shot take now. And uh, DCC Nesquik, who I'm now very good friends with, he he um, like five bet jammed like six free suited or something. I think it was against me, and I pocket kings. Um, and he, um, I was already down like five buy-ins, and then this was like deep spot as well. <laughs> And yeah, he five back down six three suited and, and like beat my pocket kings. And he posted in the chat, sorry, drunk lol. And then um I was like, I distinctly remember at the time I was like so broken because I'd like made this big sacrifice to like to go in. I'd lost like more money I'd ever lost by a long, long way. And like a lot of my actual money at that time, I guess, as well. Like probably probably the biggest I've ever lost in like net worth percent in a day. And um, even though it was five buy-ins, six hundred now. Um and I literally remember I went to my car and I drove to like, I had nothing else to do. So I, I drove to like the 24 hour Tesco and I was like looking around being like, what, what can I buy to like ease the pain? And like lots of people would have bought like some beers or something. I think I bought like, I think I literally bought like mats for my car or something. I was like, yeah, I'll have some like, at least, at least I've got this now to pull back on my car. I'll be like tidier going forward. <laughs> and then back, I was like in like a, a lost coma, just walking around Tesco at, at 3am in the morning.
But yeah, I thought you were going to say you drove to the edge of a cliff. I drove to the edge of a cliff. Yeah, yeah this would be the dark, the darker yeah, one. Yeah. yeah, but it is one of those things. Like when you, uh, it's interesting when you look back. It's obviously we, we've got like hindsight as our kind of looking back on the on as what, what's happened since then. But in those moments, like they feel like the end of the world. I'm sure all of us can relate to having a session where it's like life as it was is over. It's never going to be the same again. I failed. I can't get this back. And it's one of those like, kind of deep reflection moments, especially when obviously you decided to take a sacrifice, not go for a new year, and then just got slapped in the face with um, a big loss. So yeah, I think it's one of those, again, another like life lesson. Do you feel like you learned anything from that? Did that kind of toughen you up in any way? Did it make you more risk averse? Did you not try to take higher stakes after that? How did that, that impact you? It, that exact one probably did make me more risk averse because then after that, I didn't replay six in the again, um, although it changed it to five in the and I remember being told it when stars changed it from 400 to 500. So I was like, wow, now it's a high, even higher stick. I've got to risk all my money. Out. But um, yeah, like, honestly, I would say no. I think all of this, like, all of these moments, they're not like uh, light bulbs for me. Like I said, I think it's more like holistic. Yeah, like every time it's new scar tissue, it's like another another kind of barrier you've overcome, which you don't realize at the time. But in the long run, it starts to build up and up and you get more and more like belief that like you can bounce back because you bounce back from from worse things yet again. And like, the more you bounce back from something, the more you believe you can bounce back from the next thing that happens to you, um, which definitely is is like the benefit um, of, well, the benefit if you can have any of all of these like terrible days. What a great way to word it. It's building scar tissue. I've never thought of it like that analogy, but that's such a great kind of visual thing for me to think of. Like you're building scar tissue that allows you to uh, deal with more adversity in the future and you toughen up. Like this building resilience, almost like, I think David Goggins talks about like callousing, building calluses on like the brain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's the same thing like building like going through adversity to almost like toughen up and come back stronger. Like I said, each one of these moments isn't a big absolute in itself, but they stack up over your career. Like how you dealt with each one of these tells the story of your character here today. And all of the like, like little wins that you're kind of chalking up are scar tissue that you're building that allows you to be a more resilient vers version of yourself. So yeah, all very, very interesting. It all tells us the story of how you've managed to get to where you are. Hi guys, Rene aka The Wacko here with a quick Mechanics of Poker 2.0 announcement because we are currently open to receive new players in our Mechanics of Poker coaching program. In our program you will get access to 80 plus hours of content in which we will explain you all aspects needed in order to become a more successful poker player. Now one of these of course is the technical aspect of the game in which I'll be explaining you all the mechanics behind poker strategies. We'll be talking about GTO, exploitive play with an extra focus on the why behind certain strategies and why the population has certain leaks. And to increase your win rate even further, we've recently added a river bluff and bluff catching section so you can increase your EV when those pots become very big. Our mindset and performance coach Adam Carmichael, he took care of the mental game and performance section of this program in which he will teach you everything you need to know in order to break through limiting beliefs, better handle your emotions, break free from tilt and play your A game more consistently. And last but not least, we've added the management and optimization section in the program in which we will give you various tips and tricks to make it more likely for your poker career to succeed and how to continuously improve as a poker player. Now on top of that, this concept is continuously evolving based on feedback and suggestions we get from our community. Next to all this content, you will have access to our exclusive Discord community, monthly live Q&A calls, and one-on-one -on -one coaching session in which we are going to be reviewing if you have been implementing the stuff that we teach you in the mechanics of poker correctly. 
So do you think you have what it takes to master the mechanics of poker? And will you take one of the available seats? Go over to mechanicsofpoker.com and apply for the program. And maybe you will get a chance to work with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. But for now, without further ado, let's get back into more goodness in today's episode. So at some point you decided to move to the poker capital of Vienna, um, the capital of Europe at least anyway. Uh, what led you to make that decision? Yeah, I was like, I think this is this was another lesson I learned, to be fair. When I was in consulting, I had a very, very good social life because it's kind of built into the job. You know, you move to a new city, you meet loads of people who've also moved to a new city. You're like traveling all the time. There's like beers provided by the company and stuff. Um, and then when I moved to Edinburgh, I had like a couple of friends, basically. And like by far the closest one was Donald. But my social life was was far from ideal, I would say. And I started to really, I, I always thought I was kind of introvert. I could live with myself. I started to really realize like I, I like obviously missed being around people um, and like like having a better social life. And and with poker, it's harder to build that up because you move to a city and like you're just working on your computer um, and like outside of sports and stuff, more difficult to meet people. And I also already knew that like Daryl and Frank and Linus were living in Vienna. I visited a couple of times and seen how like good their life was because there's such a big community here, like inside and outside of poker, um, like much bigger group. And then um, I was in Barcelona. We, we traveled to Barcelona for the EPT. Uh, and I, I, well, we supposedly for the EPT, but no one actually played the tournaments. We just kind of went partying and um, drunk beers and played spiteful on the beach. Um, and I met Marcus, my boyfriend, and we were talking a lot about poker. Obviously, impressed him with my epic understanding of the game. Um, but <laughs> um, we um, we we talked like a bit about poker and like about plans and stuff. And he said he was also like considering moving to Vienna for a bit um, to try it out. So. Um, we like organized an Airbnb to like see if we liked it, um, like could live together okay and enjoyed it. And then kind of just went from there. It was like, I think we 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 went, yeah, we got an Airbnb for a couple of months, really loved it and said we were gonna come back. Then there was like all these COVID lockdowns. So um got kind of stuck, then came back in the summer again and like got a permanent place, then went back for Christmas and got stuck again because of the COVID lockdowns. <laughs> and then um ended up moving to like a bigger permanent place with um Daryl and uh, our old friend Frank. Um, and then, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's, it's mostly just the realization for me that like uh, Vienna is a very nice city, but like, I think Edinburgh, I prefer like probably Vancouver, I prefer as well, but the city itself isn't as important as like the people who are around you, I think. And it's not even close for me nowadays. I've realized like, yeah, that the city, uh, is like nowhere near as important as the, yeah, the people repeating exactly what I just said, but quite an important lesson for me at least. It sounds like you've had some great poker players around you throughout your career, how do you feel like they that's impacted your progression? Do you feel like you would have had as much success if you just solo grinded in Edinburgh or Newcastle? Do you feel like you would have came out the player you are now? Or do you feel like being around all these great poker players has shaped you? And if it has shaped you, what are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned from being around really good poker players? Yeah, 100%. I think like I'm like massively a product of the people I've, I've met along the way. Um, I think I was like, I, I do think I was like, on an okay trajectory on my own. Um, and I was always very good friends with like Daryl, for example, um, all through like my journey. Um, but like, see, just seeing the success that people have, like it's kind of the same as the downswings. It makes you believe that you can succeed because you've seen other people succeed and you've seen it happen before. Um, and then like Marcus is like, like when I live with Mark, I, I was like kind of just about playing like 1K when I moved in with Marcus and like the, it just helped me to understand so many things kind of slid into place when I started talking to him more often about like how to build a strategy and like um, 
like, yeah, kind of, I, I, and the way I like to say it to when I tell a story to my students is when I first started poker, I was like very, very interested in game theory. And like, that was just interested in the math side of things. And to the extent where I'd, I was making like massive, massive mistakes because of it, because I didn't really understand. I was like, I was like a, a, a poker professor, I'd like to say, like, I like kind of understood game theory concepts, like maybe better than some some high stakes players well probably a lot but they're completely useless because i was applying them like completely wrong i think moon has even said something similar on the podcast where he used like the one minus alpha concept this idea that you have to defend a certain part of your range and he was like using it to always defend the part of his range to make the other players bluffs indifferent without realizing that the other player didn't have zero equity bluffs at some point so maybe that resonates with some listeners but i did the exact same thing where i was just I, like aimlessly calling down in spots where people were never bluffing and then like um thinking I had my only bluff when I had thousands of bluffs and and so yeah I had all this theory ideas and they were like making me play very very badly uh, even if they made some mathematical sense on like an app on like a university paper and then I kind of pivoted from that to like I was like well this isn't working so I just started copying people instead I was like all right what, what are these guys doing and like it's obviously working for them so I started to copy them so it's like blind copy without too much understanding behind it um in certain lines and that was going like all right for me and then I started to kind of get better understanding, like um, playing a bit better, moving up the stakes. And then I met Marcus and it kind of brought all the two together because uh, Marcus, Big Blind Bets, Limitless, they all had the same coach, this internet. I don't know if you guys remember him. Um, the German and, guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had a CFP and like this, this must be one of the most successful CFP of all time. It was before Pyre. Um, and it was like all these guys together. And he basically understood all the game theory ideas, but on like a much obviously unbelievably better level than me um and he kind of taught marcus limitless all these guys these ideas like before pyro it's actually it's actually insane how how um strong he must have been um and like all of his ideas obviously eventually match exactly what the bio outputs were looking the solver outputs were looking like and marcus kind of like brought me full circle where he like brung back like all the stuff i was doing which worked i didn't understand why i could like suddenly start to understand back because Marcus Marcus's understanding of the game was so much be better and deeper than mine that it kind of helped me to understand all the stuff which I was doing and working why it worked and then how I could like make it even better um the mistakes like my opponents were making um and how to like yeah really study much more effectively so yeah Marcus definitely the biggest attribute to my success in these years I think um and yeah seeing him like this was when he he was playing like 2k 5k when he moved in with me and then like within six months you're spending 100k now um so like seeing this journey from him as well super inspirational and then daryl was probably the person i studied the most with uh also huge impact on me and then uh, a lot of random breakfast with linus where i like just spammed him with hands um or like tried to answer his hands with any kind of useful input um but yeah so much help along the way and, and finally i just so i don't miss anyone i think like the other that frank my other housemate is not so well known um a lot he's a very very old-time grinder um and these guys they taught me a lot about like recreational players because again i was just didn't have a clue what was going on there um and and like yeah learning more about like what works in practice and what really makes you money was very important for me as well mm -hmm. so we've got the evolution of you as a poker player we've got following kind of blindly following uh solver strategies and misapplying them to some degree we've then got you living with great players and almost like copying their strategies blindly and then we've got having like deep conversations and really figuring out like kind of the why behind the strategies and 
thinking at a higher level. So now I can see your kind of game like leveling up on a strategic level. But I'm always curious, like the the mindset alongside this. So at this point, you've still got like kind of a bit of a risk aversion mindset. You've still got a bit of limited beliefs about like how far you want to go in poker in terms of how much you want to make. What are some of the limited beliefs you had to uh, let go of in order to uh, almost be pulled along on this wave that was upward trending? Is there anything you had to, had to reassess or let go of? Yeah, I think like I was actually thinking about this pre-podcast a bit because I was, I was trying to, I don't know why this is the exact, exact thought crossed my mind, like how did this happen? But I think um, um, first it was like clarity about the game. Like once I started to understand more like where the money kind of came from, it like made me like feel a lot more comfortable playing higher games because if, if I can kind of, visualize better like where the EV comes from it makes it easier to visualize what, that it's coming to you um and pretty tangential but I just think worth mentioning I, I used to have like big superiority problems where I actually had kind of um let's say for example I was playing 500 now and I would this is before I moved in with Marcus and I would believe that I was good because I was like studying so much every day but I'd also know subconsciously or, or like even consciously I'd know that like there was something I didn't understand because these people were having like such better results than me playing like in ways I perceive to be bad um and I think the, the culmination of this actually was with one of your students um uh MJR I believe his name was or MBR or something MBR. I had mm-hmm. a, a unbelievable chat blow up at him where like because his style was like very unconventional and I was like I, I, I was like accumulation of tilt and I like had the worst chat blow up of my life where I was like telling him how bad he was and like how how, how good I was and stuff like this and like obviously this is like awful but like it's just a demonstration of like this uh kind of like insecurity i had about my own play i think um even though i, I was like putting in so many hours and anyway then yeah once i started to like have a lot more clarity and lose this insecurity and like start to understand more like there are players who are better than me and this is why they're better than me there are players than worse than me and, and like this is why um and obviously poker is a very complex game it's not like a, a full picture um it helped and then finally the other thing is i think part of it is down to me because I, I was like I, I like to think in my life I've always been very open to criticism from people at least I, that I have a lot of respect for um but like Daryl and Marcus and stuff I, I just always knew that if I was playing a game where they thought I was not doing well they would tell me and, and they like they have told me through my career at this this when this happens um which is rarely because I'm so nitty with what I play um so that gives you like a lot more security as well when you know that like, you've got people around who are like gonna Gonna, who, who know what they're talking about and are going to be honest with you about like the games you're playing um it makes you it makes it much more easy to to push yourself because if they say like look you're printing in this game um then it makes you believe it and obviously when they're willing to take action or whatever as well it's like putting their money where their mouths is it matters even more um mm-hmm. so yeah it helped me a lot i think yeah, so it sounds like you've held on to this kind of need for certainty and security throughout your career, but the variables that have changed is you've gained more clarity, like where the edge is when you're a winner in a game, you gain more confidence in your approach to poker and how to, to beat the games, which has lowered the risk tolerance or it lowered, sorry, lowered the risk kind of perceived risk of stepping up. If you feel very confident, all of a sudden the thought of shots taken higher doesn't feel like much of a risk because you're confident and you've got great people around you to uh, kind of keep you in check. I think it's amazing to have good friends who uh, give you honest feedback. I think everyone needs a friend who can just tell them to shut the fuck up at times and to stop doing what they're doing because so many people have like friends who will just like go yeah like they'll just support them what, what they're doing even though like, they know they're going down a one-way train so it's really good to have kind of honest friends who uh if you're playing games you shouldn't be just they would just tell you go look get stop playing those games you guys give suck you're not good enough you're getting crushed so uh, i think having yeah. that is a, a great yeah great great support system that allows you to to take risks all right ready how about for yourself did you have any limited beliefs on your uh, kind of say from mid stakes to high stakes do you feel like anything that you are holding on to that was maybe made it hard for you to to move up 
I mean, I, I'm I'm sure there were there were plenty. Like I remember for me, what was one of the biggest breakthroughs, which I mean, everyone has talked about it on the pod, and now uh, George has also mentioned, like teaming up with the right guys. Uh, I started to work together with Poker Kluka, with uh, Explode, and another guy, uh, and that basically, you know, multiple inputs they come together. And I remember that, especially Explode in this case. He installed the belief in the group that we were going to become the best. And before that, I was just, you know, grinding month by month. I was happy that I was making money. So kind of similar story to, to George. I wasn't really thinking about becoming the best. But once he installed that belief, you know, and seeing other guys like at that moment, oh, to be, you know, crushing and being very, there was a big inspiration. And we were like, yeah, we can do that as well. And then you start to think, okay, well, if we're trying to become the best, what should we be doing? Right. And then you suddenly start to study because you have a bigger goal. So I think that bigger goal was really important. And for me, especially, I was, I think, a good exploitive player. I knew nothing like I was the opposite of George. Actually, I, up until today, like math wise, my math skills are very, very, very bad, which I guess was a blessing, especially back then, because I was thinking in the game way more practical, not theoretical at all. Yeah. Uh, and I was not studying theory at all, but I knew other players around me were deep into solvers and I was studying other players. I was trying to learn from other players. So indirectly, I was also studying solvers, but I thought about way more, like they would make a play and I would be like, hmm, oh, I'm in a tough spot now or why, why does this play put me in a tough spot? And that's kind of how I learned. But then when I started to work with solvers myself as well and start to build like a more theoretical base, that's definitely when... You know, I started to realize that I was in many, in many cases, my exploitative strategy was exploiting myself, basically. So when when these things kind of came together, that's when I started to to skyrocket. Uh, so I think to answer your question, the belief that uh, the goal to try to become one of the best, and then the belief to actually become the best. And I think at some point, actually, I think at some point maybe a belief did hold me back. I think when I was at the peak. I was I was like okay I'm I'm not gonna mess with big blind bets I'm not gonna mess with Linus I'm not gonna mess yeah. with Jasem Gill I remember back then there were just a couple of guys that I was like listen I I don't have to become the best because then I have to beat them uh, and I think yeah. and OTB of course how can I forget OTB uh, but I was like yeah is it really worth it to put in that much extra to try to beat them and I was like no no the smartest way is when Linus sit down you leave the table. That was yeah. that was at some point my conclusion. That was kind of the, the smart the smart side of me. I think it also really helped that I had people around me who were who were very successful. I throughout my career, I don't know if you remember him. Throughout my career, I always worked together with Scarface VLT. He already yeah. retired uh, a couple of years ago, but that was he was always a big inspiration as well. Uh, insane work ethic, made insane hours, and uh, yeah, was on all sides on all moments. And that 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 kind of that mentality of always playing in the right games and just being online, I really got from him. And I think, yeah, it kind of all came together. And then Explode really had that competitiveness in him. Uh, and Poker Kluka, just uh, yeah, just an overall smart guy that would sometimes say, yeah, that your play is very bad. Like yeah. like you know the the uncensored the uncensored. I still yeah, remember you, a you clip. need this guy around. Yeah, I I still remember a clip. Where uh, where Kluka is burning one of my plays. Actually, I remember I made a bluff against Linus, and Linus made made a good hero call. And then I was like, ah, how can Linus call here? And then Kluka, Kluka was just like, yeah, you're bluffing with a hand that's way way, way too high up on your range. So you're clearly over bluffing, and he's just making a good call. So stop whining about it. You know, it's like yeah. very direct. Like, okay, okay, good point, good call. Sorry, I was wrong yeah. here. Uh, so yeah, I think I think uh, uh, I can definitely relate a lot to to the story of George. 
uh, and I know George has listened to a couple of the other podcasts. It's a it's a common theme you hear coming back. No one no one does this alone, right? Uh, having the right people around you is 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 a very very big determ uh, determination of how successful you become, in my opinion. Yeah. 100%. Um, I wanted to touch on a couple of points, uh, may mainly in the journey from you know, breaking through the 200 NL and starting to move up, which was, I think, mainly seeing people around you at some point, you just break through that belief, like, okay, I can do this as well. You mentioned a couple of things. I want to start off with, you said you, at some point you realized why other players were better than you and why other players were worse than you, I quote. So do you still recall like some of the reasons why some players were better than you and other players are worse than you? And what did you learn from that and how did that impact your game? Yeah, it, it comes back to what you were saying about you, when you said that, yeah, you're a, you're a practitioner first and then you start to study. And I think like, it was just this transition in my mind from like thinking that like, oh yeah, like being good at poker means being able to mirror pile outputs and then being like, hang on, like the people who win, they don't do this, you know? And like, it, like nowadays you could ask me who I respect more, like the poker professor or the poker practitioner. It's like, obviously the practitioner, like the guy who shows up every single day and like has amazing results without playing so much like a silver, I guess Stefan was like the best example of this of all, um, who, who like, yeah. And even, I would even say Marcus is this guy as well. Um, like, so yeah, it was like starting to realize the, um, that like, yeah, like EV comes from like, let's say the most basic example, like over bluffing is spots where people underfold and overfolding is spots where people under bluff. Um, and then starting to see the people that did this, the people that didn't do this, like the people who, who like, yeah, like even nowadays, if I see someone has a stat where they overfold in a spot where I know that like the average player over bluffs by a lot, I'm like, well, that, that's an objective leak because he's he's like folding bluff catches in spots where they should be winning on average. Therefore, that's like something that I can probably exploit and and even passively starts to pass some EV to me. Um, and then I also started to realize as well, it's like an ego thing. Like there was a guy, Tom Battle, uh, a full ring grinder who I remember I used as an example for this bit B videos where like he he was like notoriously not not strategically a great player like he had a lot of like what you would what would appear to be like baseline problems with his game but every year he was making so much money and I said to the guys in bit B I was like look like we can sit here and we can be like look he doesn't do these things which we've seen in pile so so like therefore we have like superiority over him or we can be like look he turns up he makes money like he makes a lot more money than most of us every single day and we can be like, well, he's, he's a better poker player because that's that's what poker's about. And we, why is it that he makes more money? Um, because some of his leaks aren't real leaks. Like they're like leaks which don't cost him EV in practice. And because he's very good at the things which actually generate EV, um, which is game selecting, playing the right times, et cetera. And like you can't you can't like devalue these skills because that is part of what being a professional poker player is. Uh, so I started to, yeah, realize, put my ego to the side more and realize more that like, these soft skills are skills to be proud of and, and matter as well. And I just want to say in case Tom Battle I mean, there's just absolutely no shots at him because I respect a lot the fact he's played all these years and and had the success he has has, which is like hard to do when you keep to keep showing up. So, yeah, yeah, this sounds very familiar. I think, and and the the response that we have, or at least that I heard you saying that I had as well, I would then get angry. You know, when when a guy like that would show up my table and win, I would get angry, and then basically that anger kind of. Sh should have showed me that something is wrong, right? Yeah. Like, okay, I can actually learn something from them. Uh, and indeed, like, what makes a good poker player is so much more than you, you know, you having a couple of good plays in your arsenal, right? 
It's like you you can be great, but if you keep on game selecting wrong and keep on playing in the toughest games, yeah, you're you're going to be the biggest loser. So I think it's very important as well to 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 estimate your skill. So what did Tom Battle teach you in the end? Yeah, it just taught just taught me this idea that like, yeah, it, it taught me um, that showing up uh, and like game selecting maybe matters more than everything else at mid stakes and and like lower lower end of high stakes. And just this idea that, like, if you're not doing this properly, then all of this time you're spending in pyros, like, getting extra X percent of EV at a spot is kind of, kind of, kind of pointless if, if, your, if your aim is to make money. Obviously, if your aim is to play, like, pyro, then the, the ladder is important. And then, secondly, I was like, well, if his strategic leaks are this big, like, this obvious, and he's still winning, doesn't that tell me that, like, some of them aren't actually, like, costing, me, costing him EV in practice? And then it starts to push me more down that avenue. Um, and then, obviously, start... Started to like Marcus was playing Stefan a lot of this time, and I was like, "Oh uh, yeah, like what, what's Stefan doing? It's like obviously not what Pi is doing. Um, why is it? Why is it that he he's winning more than every single other player ever at this time at least?" Um, and then the same kind of ideas. It's like, yeah, the poker professor like doesn't play like Stefan. Poker professor wins a lot less money than Stefan. Why is it? So what what is what are the things that Stefan's doing to transfer EV from his opponents to him? Um, and yeah, then started to look at my own game and be like, well, are these things which I'm doing um, actually good in practice or not? And, and why? So it was more like using the solver uh, less as a kind of output to copy um, and more as a kind of uh, tool to, to look more at real, real life strategies. And, and then just to continue with that, also once I realized the problems I was having, like in my pyro copying days, I don't think I was ever really a true pyro copier as I would call them nowadays. Um, like someone who tries to like truly mirror the solver. But I started did start to realize that like there are a lot of things that when you try and mirror the solver, you always do wrong. Like you always make the same mistakes. And I was like, well, I know that some of my opponents like have like publicly gone on video saying this is their strategy to mirror the solver. And and, and then I would be like, well, these guys, they're obviously going to be doing the same things as me because they're human beings too. And like it's just too hard to 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 unless you have some like rules which aren't copy solver, you always end up making the same errors. So yeah, I started to really think more about how, how like different humans play. There's like the, the and, and like how that can result in more EV to me in the long run. Um, and again, with Marcus around, so it was unbelievably helpful for this because he, he's kind of thought as like a, I think a lot of people perceive him as like a pyro player um, and he, he is very, very good, but it wasn't, wasn't really what he was, what he's doing. So I don't want to go into too much detail there. But yeah, it was very, very helpful for me. I remember actually uh, re recently, I think it was, yeah, I think it was Kluka who said, yeah, you know, actually the better you get, the more you stop playing like Pio. I think like you, you have people who are bad that, do, that don't use Pio. Then in the middle, you know, when you use Pio, it's really good. And then when, and then at some point you go surpass, surpass Pio, right? You're like, yeah, yeah okay, Pio has taught me a couple of, basic principles about you know theory and gto that i had to understand but now that i understand them i go beyond pyro and exploit the shit out of my opponents yeah and, and like uh, don't get me wrong i use pyro every single day like uh, i mean like thousands and thousands of hours and probably thousands of hours still to come where i'm like, log, like running my own hands through pyro but it's just it's just like changing the reference point from being like all right i want to play the same as the output on the screen to being like what does the output on the screen tell me and what does that tell me about if my play was good or bad and how I might want to change it. And like, what does the strategy look like on the screen? Is that realistically something I can, I can do. 
and is it is it something I even want to do like um, and if not what can I do which is kind of good and, and, and possible um, so yeah uh, I think I, I, I disagree with you for sure it's like one of the biggest flaws in, in, that I see is people trying to like holding holding like copying solver outputs on a pedestal and thinking that's what makes you money in poker when uh, I really don't think it's the, it's the case I took a, I took a, a look at your, uh, I think it was uh, your BB coaching profile. And it said that at your profile, it said, I adopted PyoSolver at a very early age. I think mm -hmm. one of my greatest skills is being able to use it effect efficiently to develop real strategies that work in game. A lot of people waste a lot of time in the wrong way. You also mentioned a little bit earlier about the, that you were lost in the rabbit hole of Pio. What do you think is like biggest mistake that people make and like which rabbit holes did you go down through in Pio that in hindsight were a big waste of time? Yeah, let's think about this. It's, um, I think just the, the one, maybe not the biggest one, but the one that comes to my mind first of all is like, um, you can just look at a node. Um, I mean, I guess a basic one, which most people are aware of now is, is like turn double barrels that you see about the flop, you bet the turn. And it's very easy to ignore certain parts of the range. Like at least this is what I did for a long time. I was like, well, let the, open end straight draws they barrel here pretty often right um and then i'd be like all right cool that's basically what i'm doing and i would like completely ignore all the fractional hands which like cumulatively uh, cumulatively add up to a lot of the range and are, are very important for like where the ev comes from um and especially when you start to consider what the other player might do to make better or worse yeah so like just look and be like all right my hand does kind of what i thought it would do sure move on um so that's one of the mistakes. Um, another mistake is like striving really hard for accuracy, I think. Um, it's like, yeah, trying to be like too accurate rather than looking at the holistic picture. Uh, aggregate reports, I think, are like, I, I, I think most people spend too long doing aggregate reports, I would, I would say. It's definitely subjective, but for me, I think like flop strategies can be, are in general, so close in EV, uh, particularly between sizings. Uh, maybe if you want to range of every board, then you do need to spend more time in aggregate reports to figure out which ones you can and can't. But um, yeah, flop strategies are so close in EV that kind of picking your poison, like picking how you want to play um, and then sticking with it, learning it, learning to implement it and going from there is probably better than spending hours and hours um, trying to chase that tiny, tiny extra bit of EV. Um, and um, there was something else I was going to say, but it slipped my mind now, but but yeah, these kind of ideas, I think accuracy is the biggest problem people have, like striving for accuracy, try, striving, for, sorry, striving for, for perfection at the cost of like implementation. And then this is why I think, yeah, when you're a practitioner and you're playing every day, you start to realize like what, what is possible to, 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 to do rather than what is possible on pay, pen and paper to, to do. Yeah, it's like, you know, you can spend all the time and aggregate the ports and find all the optimal flop sizings. But in the end, if you don't really understand what the a certain sizing achieves on a certain board and how that's going to influence the hand playing out on the later street then basically yeah you you can start with a certain flop sizing that was theoretically correct but if you then butcher the hand on the later street because you don't know yeah. how it then plays out because you didn't really understood why the strategy was there in the first place it's maybe better you just stick to something that you understand i think playing a strategy that you understand is always going to be superior than a GTO strategy or at least a GTO sizing that you don't really understand the mechanics behind. Yeah, definitely. And I think like a, a, a very good example of this, I would say is uh, 
uh, Dud one who had on your podcast. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I respect. I think he's like. I, I think he's one of the very best players in the world still, um, and also very, very. Um, yeah, I respect a lot about his game. He's he's like very aware of his own edge as well, and like doesn't take close spots. Um, and obviously has insane results over a big sample. But he he's always played like a a very what some people consider a very simple strategy, and and I know for a fact what some people would consider a very bad strategy. Like, um, uh, yeah, I've seen run it once videos, for example, where people say the way he plays it is bad without saying it about him. But the way he plays, he plays, he understands his strategy so well and plays it so perfectly um, that it's like a lot better than a lot of strategies, which on paper make make capture more EV. Um, so yeah, just a very good example of this, like someone at the at the very high stakes. And then there's the, the flip side of this again was like Stefan at his peak. Um, well, maybe Stefan is still his peak, but he seems to be AFK somewhere. Um, but where where he would like really understand how people who tried to implement complex strategies would make mistakes, I think. I never spoke to Stefan, but this is what it, it always looked like he was doing. And then like absolutely massacre them in the spots where like they're making mistakes with with their complex strategies. And they would never then they would never understand it. So but look, Stefan's showing up with another hand again, which is like a free big by mistake in Pyro. Um, and like I'm playing this strategy, so I, I'm beating him without understanding that like what he's doing is he's like anticipating the the mistakes you're gonna make and you are making them, but you you just aren't aware of it. Um so yeah, just two different approaches, but both kind of thinking along the same lines, I think, really. You mentioned that in order to progress your strategy, I wrote down your game was too simple. And another thing you wrote down was bad first recreationals. But to, to highlight the game was too simple, what was the difference between uh, uh, you met bro simple in the past and Dutch recent simple? Yeah, this is actually a very interesting question because um, I, I'm not really like, yeah, so I've never really watched poker videos or whatever, um, for whatever reason, just never gelled with me. It's like a way to learn. But the one video the one the one person who i always watched was yuri peleg um and he did a, a coaching once for bit b like when i was like still playing 200 and i think maybe or maybe a bit earlier for bit b tournaments um and i showed up to it because i was like wow well, this guy seems to know what he's talking about he was obviously dodge coach but i didn't know until afterwards and what he basically showed me is my strategy which i thought well i'll, I'll tell you my strategy was like range bet everywhere possible like bet one third everywhere possible um because I thought people wouldn't check raise me enough, they fold a bit too much, etc. But then Yuri started to show me. He was like, "Oh yeah, like his whole coaching is based on this product." It was like, "How do you, how do you exploit the strategy which everyone uses?" Because in tournaments, it's even more common. Um, and he made me realize like there's a lot. Like it's very obvious now looking back. There's a lot more facets you have to think about rather than just like, "Is someone gonna check raise you or fold enough?" Um, and like there was a lot more ways which. Like my strategy was like flawed in ways I just didn't have any understanding of. And I think Yuri had a very first principles approach. And I still think his videos are really, really good. Um, I know like, um, yeah, Marcus watches his videos and often says the same. It's like, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of sick how he, he can anticipate this is why I did this. And it's like, actually why? Um, because yeah, he had like a very good first principles approach. And so he like understood things from, from, from the game theory point of view and then he also was very good pra practitioner practitioner like knew about like mistakes that human beings make and how you can use those to get EV for yourself as well and then obviously his his students have absolutely ludicrous results <laughs> over the years so um yeah another one who has just definitely helped me a lot even if it was just for one hour of coaching for a bit tournament um 
But um, yeah, that it was, it was kind of, I don't necessarily think the simplicity was bad. It was just that I didn't really understand what I was doing. Like you said a minute ago, I didn't really understand my own strategy and like what, what the implications were uh, for, for kind of downstream nodes as well as I wanted to. I kind of looked at power. I was like, range betting here doesn't lose EV much, so must be fine without thinking like, what's Pyro doing to make sure that it doesn't lose EV by using the strategy. So where in your opinion is then sort of the sweet spot? I have some mixed feelings about this as well in terms of should we keep the game simple? You know, where does simplicity come in? Like obviously you were in an extreme. You just went range bet, range check, probably certain boards and you will use one sizing. That's probably like the most simple you can go. Yeah. Uh, your game, I assume, has developed, but I do. Uh, you do still try to keep certain things simple, or how does your game look now? And how have you applied, or how has simplicity evolved for you? Yeah, I, I would say overall, like my approach, the bit B approach, is, is is on the simpler side of things. Like not not quite as extreme as some people, but um, definitely on the simpler side of things. It's a very subjective question because we know for sure that some people at the nose bids play very complex strategies and, and do well. We also know that uh, the other side of things, like I said. So I think like you can definitely, just, just by that logic, you can definitely argue both sides comfortably. Um, for someone who's learning poker and coming up though, I would always say like limiting your um, options will just help you because I think like the more you can visualize your own game plan, the more you start to realize the problems that people are going to have with theirs and like, it's kind of, for me, at least, this is how it worked. I was like, I can visualize what I'm supposed to be doing here, start to see that other people might be making the mistakes I used to make. And then how can I transfer you from that? Whereas the more complex your game is, the more you um, struggle to visualize, in my opinion, at least, because it's just harder for your brain to contain so much information. But then I would say, once you've reached a certain level, um, you start to like, you can start to like, once you've reached a certain level and you have a certain understanding of like what different bet sizes achieve, what different strategies achieve, you can start to re-add the complexity in. Um, but it's just being competent, you know, like, I, I think I would actually say the main thing is if you know the signs that someone is like stiffening you and punishing you for your complexity and you can be sure either that they're not truly punishing you or you can readjust to like make sure that they don't keep doing it, I think is an important thing. And most people, when they start, wouldn't be capable of, of seeing those signs, I would say. So what would be what, 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 what would be the signs that someone is exploiting my complex, complex strategy? What are like the first it, signs to look for? It's like a, a, it's a difficult one because like some, I, it's a question where I have to like round about answer just because um, I think some of the ideas weren't only mine and I don't want to mm -hmm. uh, like share, share stuff other people told me. Um, but I guess it's, it, I, I mean, I guess the most obvious example is like, if someone takes a wild showdown against you, like like makes a bluff catch, which you know is not an equilibrium bluff catch, or you look at afterwards and it's like clearly not equilibrium bluff catch. And this player is a good player who is likely to also know it's not an equilibrium bluff catch. Then just start to think like, why might he have done it? And is he correct in his assumption is basically the way I'd put it. Or vice versa, where like someone makes a bluff, which is clearly not an equilibrium bluff, and you know that he knows it's not an equilibrium bluff. Be like, why might he have done it? And just be very objective to be like, is he right or wrong? Because obviously the natural Im implications be like this fucking idiot, mate. He's 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 bluffed me with this combo, and I'm like yeah. defending this spot perfectly. But like, it's obviously very often not the case. Um, 
So yeah, yeah there's maybe <laughs> a small nuance, you know, maybe overall in that spot you play good, but there's a small nuance in the texture or in whatever timing you gave away. I don't know what kind of small exactly, nuance, yeah. you know. That and it's very important, I think, and this is kind of also where I think the ego comes in, right? To put it on the side, especially when you know you might have got owned. The yeah. the first response, if your ego is still very present in you, is indeed to say, Oh, so lucky, you know, my strategy with against his strategy is such an idiot, look what he's doing. But once you can put that ego on the side and be like, hold on for a minute, this guy's a good player. Why does he do that? And that's when you, I think you can, you, you can really progress. Yeah, 100%. I think like the, the really important thing I see from a lot of people, again, is like, like yeah, you shouldn't put people on a pedestal and you shouldn't assume they all play perfectly. Like the best players in the world still, still make mistakes. But equally, you've got to think in a kind of Bayesian way. And like if Davy Jones makes a non-equilibrium play against you, um, then... You maybe want to, and it's like obviously an non-equilibrium play. You shouldn't assume like, oh, Davies made a huge error. You should be like, all right, this guy who's winning eight big blind battling the best in the world for, for forever, he's probably done it for a reason. And like, it's more likely his reason is correct than, than I've just owned him. Um, and I think this is this is where like, yeah, the ego comes in. It's just be, you have to really be objective and and assume that good players tend to make decisions for a reason. Um, this is also, it it requires also a certain level of confidence. I think it's normal that when you're developing your confidence, what kind of helps is to kind of assume the rest are just bad. And sometimes yeah. at certain stage in your career, it kind of helps to kind of overestimate yourself and down talk a little bit on people just to give you a little bit of that extra push, you know, so that you actually go out and punish them. But I think then at some point, actually Poker Kluka comes to mind again. Uh, he said, yeah, yeah, no, he's very good, but I'm still going to beat him. You know, that's like, that's yeah. that's that's real confidence right there. You don't have to down talk your opponent. You say you acknowledge that he's very good, but he's still going down, right? That's like yeah. Then that's in my opinion uh, a sign of true confidence. Yeah, and 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 like yeah, I I think the most important thing in poker is just self awareness as well. It's just like like people, everyone who plays poker professionally is like good, relatively speaking, and then there's levels of good and like. Obviously, it depends if you're playing six match with fish, less important. But if you're starting playing heads up and stuff, you, you have to know, like, you have to be able to judge where your EV comes from and, like, the players that you just, you just aren't going to objectively beat or you're always going to be a tough, tough career for you. And, like, yeah, I think for me, um, once I start, like, I have a lot of confidence in my own game against certain people. But then, like I said, Davey's a good example. I, I just, like, objectively, I can't say that I'm going to sit at the table with him in a free-handed game and have have good results when, like, the weight of evidence is so much in his favor. Like I know the games he's been playing, they're not games I would play. I know his results are like absolutely ludicrous for such a long time, supposedly. Um, so uh, with that, with that information, I'm, it would be, it wouldn't be a great assumption for me to sit down and think that I'm gonna do well. I think. Why? So is it then? Is it then a lack of self awareness? Because I always wonder why people still sit down three handed with. For example, the passive with Linus or, you know, or uh, Mike Boyfin or David Jones. Why do people, there's always some guy that speaks like, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Linus and David Jones. That seems like a good game to this sit is, down this in. Is, is this me, lack mate. of self-awareness or, yeah, yeah. you know, how does it, Linus still get action after five years? Seriously. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like, um, I think some people are self-aware and they know they're like, all right, I'm, I, I like, don't, they don't have the same goals. You know, like, like I said, my, I was always kind of thinking like I want to be professional in poker and like do well. Whereas other people, they they play much more for for like they they like make a lot of money, but they're also a lot more like less concerned about playing minus EV games, which is fair enough. Obviously, it's a different approach. So some people are doing that, 
some people do just genuinely have the lack of self-awareness I think and, and like every human being overestimates themselves compared to other people as as an aggregate I would say um so like, it's not that surprising especially with poker like all the emotions that flow through you when you're playing etc um and like then there's the people who look at pyro outputs and they think like fucking hell look at these posts in MVG I've seen Davey he's like made this player which isn't in pyro therefore like and I, I'm gonna beat him because he's doing this um so yeah it's like a mix of things but I do think some of it does generally come down to to lack of self-awareness and also like the other thing I I always think which is very subjective and different people have different approaches I know Zass on the last podcast so I, I absolutely love Zass by the way he's one of my my favorite players like the podcast is awesome and like I love his approach to the game he just does not care like he's he's he just loves loves poker I think um and loves playing against people but um I think that like if you play like Zass plays um well well Zass is not not the only example but if you decide you're going to go play everyone kind of like what Lions did when he was coming up right and, you, and if you're right about yourself being the best then obviously like you end up being having crazy results because you like put yourself in spots where you're winning everyone's doesn't prepare to play you do well but like it's a high variance approach to the game and if you um kind of do more what i did which definitely suited my risk tolerance better where you don't take the close spots my upside is definitely lower but my downside i think there's very few timelines where i would have ever gone broke um whereas if you if you keep playing if you kind of keep looking for the edge eventually you're going to find it you know like every almost everyone who's ever looked to play everyone ends up playing someone who they lose to um and and like yeah it's a much higher variance approach again you just have to be prepared to take the take the downside with it which i think a lot of people genuinely are though there's, there's a lot of people who who battle everyone they know that like all right, i might not be winning this battle so it's not necessarily like they're sitting down uh thinking that they're winning that they're, they're prepared to like pay the pay the price to learn i think um yeah, you mentioned uh, multiple times, and I have this written down as a question as well. Um, you mentioned many, many times where the money comes from. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, where in your opinion does the money come from? And where do you think people are often wrong thinking that the money comes from? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the obvious like, cop answer, which is, which is the correct answer, is the recreational players, obviously, because... Um, against the reg if you start like if you think a reg overfolds and you like bluff the worst combo in your range because it makes money now then the reg is going to have some conscious reaction to it so like if i'm playing against you and i think you overfold a spot and i bluff with the mistakes i flush draw you're going to see the outcome and be like well he probably thinks i overfold there so next time i'm probably just not going to fold a bluff catcher or at least make some reaction so your upside is limited whereas a fish he doesn't like have he doesn't know what combo is supposed to bluff and which combos aren't supposed to bluff so you can like Play your whole range as bluffs and you don't have to put your value hands in the same sizing as your bluffs etc so like for that reason it's like a cop answer but obviously like the ev gains you can make against fish are like absolutely like on a different scale to regs um and then in terms of like reg versus regs so if you were telling me like i'm going out to battle battle regs and i need to be like where's my win rate coming from um this is more subjective but the way i tend to think about it is if i'm like trying to like out out like game plan someone I'm, i don't really want to be there so i don't want to be sat at a table where i'm like all right it's my game plan against his game plan and i'm just going to hope that mine yields more ev um so i'd rather i'd rather like know that i can play my game plan but there's some spot which i know about where i'm gonna like turn this reg into a fish effectively where i'm gonna not, not quite as extreme as what i said i'm not gonna like have a sizing which is only bluffs 
like against fish, obviously you have certain which you only have bluffs in and you bluff every combo in your range. But I'll have I have a spot where I like over bluff a lot or over fold a lot or something. Um, a spot where there's like an EV transfer from him to me, which is much more than just um much more than just like, oh my see that strategy is slightly better than his or something. Um so yeah. this is, I guess more of a so you have your strategy which you think is solid, but you have a couple of conscious points where you know you're gonna transfer EV from him to you. It, exactly, yeah. And and like obviously there's lots of reg battles that go on which aren't necessarily like this. Um, like the current like GG 20k battles. I'm not I'm not sure if if the guy's playing like think like, oh yeah, this spot I'm gonna like like it's like Davy, Linus. I mean, the, there's actually absolute madness going on GG at the moment. It's Davy, Linus, Zas, Daryl. Um there's loads of guys who are coming in there. Nacho. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if they have these like, these ideas, but at the same time, they're always, I think, on the lookout for like where someone slips up, you know, like where someone um makes a makes a, a, a sizing which isn't part of their actual strategy or something like this, or or timing it could be, I guess. Um, or if 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 yeah, something else like that happens. I I, I don't Yeah, think when someone many... slips up, they notice, for example, if everyone has been in this situation where your gut just tells you or a certain sizing comes out, it's like, yeah, this does not make any sense. Sometimes, you know, you just slip up. I, I played a hand, I think, yesterday, literally, and I choose the sizing. It's like, oh, wait, this actually makes no sense. It's just that for <laughs> yeah. exactly my hand, which was a bluff, this sizing actually made sense because of the blocker, blah, blah. From yeah. my range perspective, this is a non-existent sizing. Yeah. And this is where good players, they just instantly punish you. Yeah. Then you see yeah. the time bank, and if he's a good player, you're like, oh, shit. Yeah, obviously, he will read right through this. I'm such an idiot. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know the exact feeling where you make, you make a play, like, oh, wait, hang on a minute. This is only bluffs out. <laughs> this is only Yeah, exactly, here. right? It's and like, oh, shit, this play, or it's only value. It's like, oh, shit, the only reason yeah, I yeah. make this play is because the actual hand triggered me to make this play or choose this sizing. And sometimes, then if the player is like, hey, this is odd, then it's like, what what triggered you to choose this sizing? Oh, is it more likely that it was a bluff that triggered you to choose the sizing or a value hand that, uh, that chose the sizing yeah, or yeah. this line? And that's where good players, they're kind of, uh, yeah, they will definitely punish you. And I guess that happens a lot at, at those limits. Yeah, but they, they absolutely kill you, yeah. Um, on, but I mean, times. then again, um, they don't slip up that, that, that easily. Yeah, but then that again, often, you know, we still yeah. play against humans. People who have a range in their game, sometimes they will play better than others. So I guess... Also, yeah. I think what you mentioned, the person who can execute the strategy most consistently is a very important skill uh, in all limits, but especially at those limits, just simply because, you know, you have to be at the top of your game, uh, yeah, in order to beat those guys. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and like, that, like I would I would never consider playing these games that are going on, but well, partly because I would be losing heavily, but also just in general, like the, the variance and stuff. But there are like, that these guys, some of them are making mistakes and stuff like this, and some of them, like I, I, I probably wouldn't say on this podcast, but there are players who I would like take the action of in these games, for example, um, if that makes sense. So I do think they're beatable even at the, the highest mm -hmm. levels. Um, although the GG rake does make it more problematic than than the old stars rake. Yeah, they should um, just go play lower stake and do markup. Yeah, of course, but it's, it's just just so much more com com complicated, I think. And then yeah, tramp down ACR, and it's just. Like uh, the, the blind lobby creates problems and stuff, but yeah, I think um, the other thing I was going to mention as well is there there is the problem nowadays. Like when 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 it was like all on stars, uh, there was like not really much ten k that ten k that ran, and there was a lot of five k L battles that ran. So um, you got kind of like reasonable samples, or, or like pe people had a general idea of like who was 
good and who was bad. Whereas now when there's like 100K running sometimes, 200K running sometimes, 40K running sometimes, like results are like very, very wildly different to like reality, I think. And it creates like God complex in some people where they don't realize like that, that they've run well. And then the opposite in other people where they don't realize they've run badly. Um, and and then this this creates more of these kind of battles, I think, as well, uh, because because of that, it's very hard to like unanchor yourself from results. But now with this, the differences in stakes, like the results are like becoming less and less a reflection of um, of skill level, at least in my opinion. Um, you mentioned the god complex. So this is, I guess, when you go with the swings. In this case, in the up, you think you're a little bit better than you might actually be. Uh, Ever, everyone listening, me included, George included, Adam included, has been there. How does God Complex show in George? And have you now nowadays? I assume over the years, you know, you become more aware of when it happens, so you can correct faster. Well, what is a sign that George is on the God Complex? What do you do? Yeah, we even have it in our coaches' channel, bit BOS, me, Marcus, uh, Pisak, and um, Daryl often talking about hands and like you see a handle that you make. This is God Complex. It's just like. It's just like deciding that someone is over bluffing so much that you, it, it mostly is in obviously the, the more hot you're running, the less risk averse you become. So it's not normally like massive hero calls. It's normally the, the opposite, massive hero calls or massive like ridiculous bluffs because you decide he has exactly one combo or something. Um, yeah, this this kind of aspect of things. Um, and I definitely had like my my swings in like, uh, right now I've like took a step away from the, the, the nosebleed adventures which um, I was only playing like recreational ga- uh, uh, softer games anyway in these games and had a small piece of myself, but didn't go didn't go great for me. But like in at the beginning, it went pretty well when I was playing like um, 10k to 40k and I started to like, I think it made me play better in a lot of ways, but also, yeah, started to make more ridiculous plays like, um, and um, then they were going well. So it made me make more ridiculous plays until the point I could start to make some minor CP plays because of this, because uh, you kind of forget to respect your opponent's as much as you should do uh, when things are going really, really well for you. Yeah, I remember, I, I think I read somewhere and I experienced that as well. It's like when when you feel like the other people don't understand you anymore. So you feel like you're at a certain level with your thought processes about hands. And let's say, for example, your case, you know, you speak to Daryl, Mike and Boyfin. You're like, guys, you just don't understand what <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah. That should be a sign. I remember, I remember I had this with Explode Gluka. And I remember still very clearly, I was in a high, I was battling OTB, and I was floating a hand that's basically... The fact that I floated that hand meant that I would fold 0% to his yeah, yeah. Float, Floating on like an ace-high board. So yeah, guys, floating out of position, ace-high board, perceived call range too strong, bluff river, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, yeah, but you're playing against OTB and you're not floating... The, literally like this is this is probably the first five percent hands that you will ever that that you would just snap full to a c but you're floating now i'm like yeah guys but you don't understand you know this is such a good play <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah obviously i was just uh yeah, I, 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 I was I suffering from well. god complex yeah common um yeah. you you uh you do a lot of coaching as well you mentioned uh i was wondering in your opinion i think you already uh shed a light on it what in your experience, is one of the biggest, um, how can I say, the biggest contributor to a student succeeding and a student failing? I think you already start, talked about dealing with adversity. Uh, any yeah. other things that come up in your opinion that if you look at like, oh, these students, students didn't make it, these students did make it, 
what was the difference between them because they received or assuming that they received the same coaching. Yeah, yeah. So um, first things first, um, I would say like the, 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 the coaching makes you appreciate variance so much because with the students, you have all their hands. So like, and you have all their showdowns and then you have hands to where you can like, you can really see what that strategy looks like. Um, so you do get players who like you just know are playing well. Like you know, like like they're like bluffing the spots where like against they're playing perfectly against recreationals, obviously. Um, and you know that like their strategy is like well balanced, or if it's unbalanced, it's unbalanced for a good reason. Um, and they lose, or vice versa, where you know a player's playing badly and they win. So it does make you really appreciate the variance, and and so that leads me to the obvious answer, which is it's how well they deal with the variance because over a year, like like variance over a year is crazy, like how things go like not not that they're like vaguely based on your strategy i mean a bit more than vaguely i guess if you don't make mistakes too hard um but over your career like how you deal with variance matters so much because like these guys who have good game plans and, and are losing like obviously they can get disheartened and quit or they can keep going and this is part of the value of the coaching as well i guess because you can really show them on paper being like look you look at what you're look at how you're playing like we have it like spe- laid out here perfectly hands note um and and look at like how how the coaches are playing it's like very identical the coaches have made millions and millions of dollars from this game um so it helps a lot with mindset there i think self-awareness is the other thing as well like like we talked about already it's like if you're gonna like start thinking you're a bit good and then start battling everyone it's just not gonna end well for you on average like even if even if there are like outlier outcomes um so yeah it's like continuing to be humble um like having confidence where it's correct to have confidence and not having confidence where um where, where it's correct to not have confidence, basically, I think is is super important as well for students. Um, and and there is some like innate ability thing, and and work ethic obviously goes without saying. Like when you join Bitly, there's we're not really like spoon feeding information um, in quite the maybe not in the best way because all of the coaches are, are playing poker the whole time, and a lot of it is kind of we try to put people in a really immersive environment where they have like if they if they want to learn how to play a node, there's a video on that node because we've done every 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 node by this point but a lot of it is like we stream all our study sessions um so they have the the two coaching sessions a week um the one-to-ones and then we every study session i've done since i was playing tuna right now pretty much i would say i've streamed four bit b um but like you're showing up there and i'm studying my hands i'll like answer questions from the chat but i'm not going to like spoon feed like why i'm range betting this flop and why i'm playing 75 on this spot because i don't have time to do it whilst i'm trying to do my own study as well so a lot of it is like taking the time to show up to this, but then going away afterwards and like really understanding what you took away. And, and the guys who have the most success definitely have these like this like really good work ethic and and um, good response to adversity, I would say. And I guess also the guys that that don't get spoon fed the answer, they actually like it because they are they are problem solvers and they like to problem solve. And I think that's a very important characteristic in a poker player. Whereas the guys who want to have it spoon fed they kind of look for a shortcut and given how competitive, especially high sex poker is, yeah, that mentality, basically you already know from the start, that's not going to make it. Yeah. It's like a self self-selection when you put it that way. It's like, yeah, the people who want to solve the problems are going to do well, um, which, which means that, yeah, the people who, who show up do well, but yeah, I think it's like, it is different as well because there's different stables with different approaches. Obviously like bit B we treat as like, it's obviously been very successful over the last years, but ultimately me and Daryl and Patrick, we treat it as like an extension and Marcus as well. We, we treat it as like an extension of our own poker game. So we're not going to like spend hundreds of hours, like making like 
custom lines for every spot. We're not going to tell the students like, like this is exactly what you should do in this spot. Um, we're more like doing things a lot more holistically. Whereas the stables where the 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 the, the business owners like aren't playing poker like anymore, they're like more inclined to kind of create like a hive mind bot, if that makes sense. Where it's like mm-hmm. they just take a player who's, and it scales way better as well. Like if you're trying to get a hundred players, you can't do what Bit B does because it just doesn't work. Like um, you, you yeah, have so basically you're, you're 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 just opening up for people to take a look at what you do. When you do a study session, you share it. When you play a session, you share it. That's kind of more uh, the way they learn. I guess. Yeah. And we, we have obviously a lot of resources as well. Like, and they have like dedicated coaching sessions twice a week um, as well. So I don't want to undersell that side of things, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not like we're giving them like, we're not giving them a, a book with like our game plan written down on, if that makes sense. Uh, it's no, more yeah, about like, how, how to think about. I understand what yeah. you mean. And I, I, in my opinion, like if I would do a coach, let's say I would do a coaching session with you, I would probably be most interested in, in, reviewing you play or railing you play and asking behind your thought process because in the end how someone thinks about the game or the the the, the variables that he takes highly in making his decision that's where in my opinion you can learn from a lot so if in my opinion it would be way valuable let's say we do a coaching session i would be way more interested in your game than you taking a look at my game because i want to know how you think about the game and that's where i can learn from like oh interesting so these are the variables that you rate very highly in this decision this is how your decision making looks this is what you find very important okay great that's because like a lot of things uh you can you can think about poker in many ways you can approach it in many ways and i think what yeah what, what you can really learn from from good players is seeing how they approach it obviously strategical there's also interesting things and obviously if some people would look at my game or vice versa, you know, they could find things or flaws in my thought process, but that would be something that I think is most, most valuable. Uh, I think also in, in my experience with CFP, we had exactly the same things. If we could just keep players be consistent, right? Because like you said, when they're in an upswing, they play more, they play less, study more, study less. So in the end, consistency is key. And I think, the key to being consistent is to estimate variance. Um, so if you can analyze your game for variance other than just all in EV and take a look at your stats and compare them indeed with, like I said, for example, stats with crushers and you see, listen, strategically you're playing basically identical only here based on these filters. There's a lot of variance in your game that gives that stability and then they don't go do something crazy, right? A big problem yeah. is that people will alter a winning strategy because they... They, they feel like they have to do something because they're losing, right? So that I thought was a very big one. And probably the most important one, which I'm sure you have probably encountered as well, is when a student is faced with financial pressure. If, yeah. if, if someone deals with financial pressure, I think literally I can, everyone who didn't make it uh, to our CFP, there was, or at least that didn't perform as well, there was some form of financial pressure involved, which I think it makes it way harder to, be process oriented so, and they will just yeah performing under financial stress you're i mean this is probably where where we should consult adam in hi guys renee aka the wacko here with a quick mechanics of poker 2.0 announcement because we are currently open to receive new players in our mechanics of poker coaching program in our program, you will get access to 80 plus hours of content in which we will explain you all aspects needed in order to become a more successful poker player. 
Now, one of these, of course, is the technical aspect of the game in which I'll be explaining you all the mechanics behind poker strategies. We'll be talking about GTO, exploitive play with an extra focus on the why behind certain strategies and why the population has certain leaks. And to increase your win rate even further, we've recently added a river bluff and bluff catching section so you can increase your EV when those pots become very big. Our mindset and performance coach Adam Carmichael, he took care of the mental game and performance section of this program in which he will teach you everything you need to know in order to break through limiting beliefs, better handle your emotions, break free from tilt and play your A game more consistently. And last but not least, we've added the management and optimization section in the program in which we will give you various tips and tricks to make it more likely for your poker career to succeed and how to continuously improve as a poker player. Now on top of that, this concept is continuously evolving based on feedback and suggestions we get from our community. Next to all this content, you will have access to our exclusive Discord community, monthly live Q&A calls, and one-on-one -on -one coaching session in which we are going to be reviewing if you have been implementing the stuff that we teach you in the mechanics of poker correctly. So do you think you have what it takes to master the mechanics of poker? And will you take one of the available seats? Go over to mechanicsofpoker.com and apply for the program. And maybe you will get a chance to work with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. But for now, without further ado, let's get back into more goodness in today's episode. Adam, how, how, how much of your cognitive abilities are decreased when you perform under stress? You probably come up with a great number now. <laughs> no magic formula for that one, I don't think. But uh, oh. yeah, obviously, financial pressure is going to put a lot of strain on your game. And very often, it's just attachment of results. So you feel the losses more. You try to force players more. You're... Rather than thinking about poker as a strategy game, being curious, you're thinking, how do I win? When am I going to get a good session? And all of a sudden, you're, you always get blindsided by what matters. And the more financial pressure builds, the more you wake up in the morning thinking, I want to win today. You're not going to think about the game anymore, how to improve and how to get better. And this just builds and builds. And the more players are oh yeah, in obsessed with money or in a situation where they need to pay the rent next week or they've got lots of pressure on them, the ability to think is just completely um, downgraded. They're playing poker now and they're like, got to win this hand, got to win this session. So uh, yeah, their creative abilities, their full potential as a poker player is just not on display. But again, it's, it's very subjective because you can have some players who are, in theory, are under a lot of financial pressure, but they don't feel it the same. They're like, they've kind of got a high risk tolerance and they're like, just playing carefree. You've got other guys who've got a thousand buy-ins sitting in the bank and they're like, oh, the money, is, I'm under, under yeah. pressure here. I had one guy who had like, um, I think he had eight months of full living costs covered and he was feeling a lot of financial pressure like day to day, week to week as in like, I need to make money this month. And I was like, where's this, where's this pressure coming from? And he just created like a uh, kind of analogy for his own life where I can't be moving backwards. If I don't make money this month, that's one one month closer to ruin, one month closer to uh, being bankrupt and having to sell stuff to make money. I was like, whoa, you've, you've took it really far here. So yeah, relationship with money is really big. Risk tolerance is really big. How we deal with adversity, as uh, George was saying, super, super big. And yeah, obviously when you kind of bring a lot of factors together with certain profiles, you might have a, a low risk tolerance. You put them on a downswing, you create financial pressure, you create like a bit of a melt, melting pot of kind of bad attributes that are going to uh, yeah lead to a kind of derailing of that person, so to speak. So yeah, it's uh, very interesting. And poker is so diverse. I always feel like it's, it's so interesting. I like to like thought experiments with like, 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 like George said, could you take that guy off the street and train him to be good at poker? Yeah. 
And like, there's such an optimistic part of your mind that wants to go, yeah, of course I could. And there's another part going, a realistic part going, you wouldn't make it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to build all the attributes. I couldn't, I couldn't get them to the level needed to deal with everything poker requires. And sometimes you, just, you don't really know what kind of cocktails needed. I remember my friends, like three of us did really well in poker. And we tried to like kind of convince other, other parts of our friend group to, uh, to kind of give it a go. And in theory, they were like kind of smarter than us, good at maths, good at like, um, risk tolerance, but every one of them had other flaws that held them back. And um, we couldn't even see at the time we thought we were bad at coaching, which we definitely were, but we, we we couldn't see that all the attributes that needed for to make a good poker player. And some of them were just missing. Like you was talking about, one of my friends just like to be spoon fed. So we were giving him all the information. And as soon as we didn't give him the information, he couldn't problem solve for himself. Another one just couldn't deal with the amount of kind of uncertainty. How do you deal with uncertainty? When am I going to start winning? Maybe used to ask every day, when am I going to start winning, Adam? I was like, yeah. I don't know. Like, we don't even know when we're going to start winning. It's I'm a bad, bad question to be asked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, going to start winning? I like it. Yeah, so, yeah and then the months went by and he's just like, well, I don't know when I'm going to start winning. I was like, okay, well, you don't need this. So yeah, I think the, the attributes like going to uh, a winning poker player or a successful poker player are very diverse, but like all of us have been around a lot of poker players. We can see a lot of common attributes across players and we can also see warning signs that would make, make it more challenging ever poker players. So question I want to ask you, George, is what do you think has been the greatest contributor to your success? As we talk about, there's lots of things that you've, you've, you've done over the years. Is there any one thing that you feel has given you the ability to have the success you have currently or any characteristics you've built that have been a, have a big, big impact? Yeah, yeah. Actually, just, just for answer, I was just going to think, I, I just because I've been shouting out all these other um, poker stables, but also obviously the, the Poker Ambition stable, uh, I had a lot of respect for over the years. And uh, yeah, Kempi, he is one of my, my biggest enemies for so long, right? I just can't beat this guy. And he's obviously a, a product of you guys. So um, yeah, loads of respect for that. And obviously what you guys do with the podcast as well, is like really cool, I think, and definitely like keeps it, keeps it kind of real showing people what like, the games really like, which I think is important. Um, I heard. Uh, I heard you. You can now confirm this, but I remember I heard that you guys labeled us the Dutch Innovation Crew. True or false? What's that? Yeah, I mean, there's been lots of names for the Dutch crew over the years, <laughs> but like, they, I yeah. like that one, the Dutch Innovation Crew. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah, no, we've 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 always had like um, always it's always been fun to turn up the table and see what poker Kluke has cooked up or whatever, or like um, yeah, like uh, Kempi has been like a, a prime enemy of our house over the years as well. Just can't constantly losing stacks will be like come up with like how many stacks did you lose to brian today mate oh yeah just another another five um but yeah um definitely a lot of good a lot of like amazing uh, players that come out of that um but yeah that's the question was um what sorry can, can you i got lost now with my praise for poker ambition what was the question again the question was what do you think has been the greatest or one of the greatest contributors to your success over the years yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, like I would always credit like a lot of my success to 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 luck. You know, like I said, like I obviously ran very well when I started, and then like uh, got into Skype groups with the people that um that that mattered and like made my career go the way it, it goes. So I wouldn't understate that. Um, I would say in general, though, um, this like uh self awareness again, it's a word I keep saying, but I think it helped me a lot. Um, and like yeah just just kind of like being able to realize maybe a bit too late at times like when i was okay to make a step up and then more recently as well being able to realize that like when it was time to like maybe stop playing the, these games where i was um constantly losing um and then finally just like the community like bit b obviously we made with the aim of like making some more money but like i've realized over the years like just this community is so valuable for me even for me as a coach you know like having like 
all these guys around to bounce ideas off. Like some of the students are so good at poker now. Like when people finish contracts a bit B, they tend to stay in the group in, in like a various form. And like, yeah, some of the students like randomly shouting out like Jack of Yusuf Ahmed, who obviously coaches for us as well now. Um, they're like uh, El Pontius Law, um, uh, like even like some of the guys who started 100 and L, but like they, they show up to the study sessions and they kind of like act actively help you as well. And just having, it just makes poker more fun being around these people, which I think is the main thing, makes it much less of a grind like having like a big community of people to be um to be involved with mm, awesome very good stuff yeah as you were speaking there i was, I was trying to guess myself what you're going to say i was just writing down self-awareness as you said it yeah. and i think self-awareness is definitely a big one for you uh, in terms of knowing how to uh navigate the poker world based on your own characteristics so we've got someone like yourself who's quite risk averse like security uh, you've got to pick a career path in poker that allows you to function with those kind of attributes obviously you could say okay i could become a more risk tolerant person but in general someone who's get risk averse is going to carry that to some degree with them so for you to play stakes to uh basically take on less risk you never went broke which is i think it was a goose call who was saying like when we when we saw with him that he was all his german friends used to say you're the only guy in our, our, our stable who won't go broke because like yeah. there's your, your risk tolerance and the, the, the decision you make align with that so it's one of those things that when you know yourself well enough i'm sure your friends i'm sure over the years, you've had lots of players around you going, go on, take more risk, go on, play those games. Sometimes it might work out and sometimes the push is what you need, but often like knowing yourself well enough to go, right, this is where we need to be, this is where I make money, this is, I don't need to play those high games. You spoke like recently that this year you were playing some of the nosebleed games, the like, 10K plus, and you decided to go back to playing the, your current games. So we'll, we'll touch on that in a second. But yeah, I think having the self-awareness to know uh, where do you fit, where, where do you make the most money? And yeah, building your kind of career path around that. You guys also talked about like some players who will sit in a, a kind of a really hard line, lineup with Linus, et cetera. Those kind of guys might be picking a good path for themselves. They might be more yeah. curious about learning, improving. Their win rates might be lower, but they might have a relationship with the game where they just want to learn the best strategies and also challenge themselves against good opponents. So I think the, the self-awareness is really, really key for this because if you get that assessment wrong, like you said, if you're the guy trying to battle everyone, the best players in the world, and either you've got assessment wrong, high variance approach, but also like, is that not a fit for your character? You, you're not the person who deals well with these big swings, this big uncertainty, you, you're going to come unstuck. So yeah, I think that's a real, real big one. So yeah, you talked about playing the nosebleeds this year. First of all, what made you decide that that wasn't a fit for you? Or do you feel like that's just a short-term thing? Yeah, talk me through like how that chapter went and what was kind of the takeaway you had from, from playing those games. Yeah, I think like, um, so So I guess like last year, middle of last year, I started playing some 10K games. Um, and I was like, first of all, selling, I took my own action at, at 10K. And then um, I had like an opportunity to play um, the the higher, the even higher stakes games and just basically treat it as the same stakes for me. So I was like more volume. And in general, I would say I was looking at these games and, and I still kind of believe this, like when they run with recreational players, they actually tend to be softer than um, 10K and 5K. Maybe not quite the case anymore because like a lot of people have come back and a lot of the a lot of like the, the good players have moved up as well. But for a long time, it was like to play 40K, for example, or 100K, the extreme example. I think I've played like 50, 50 hands of 100K lifetime, so I can't really come on that one, but 40K and 20K where I played a bit more. Um, it's like not necessarily a meritocracy anymore. It's not like the best players play there because no one is really rolled for these stakes. Um, well, at least they weren't before the big crypto upswing. So anyone who's playing there is just either playing kind of a bit degenerately or, or selling a lot of action or there are, there are some people that are rolled. So it's not really fair to say that, but a lot of like old time regs come back who are like nowhere near as strong as like the, the kind of O Spiels, who's like the, the trademark kind of 5k player who's, who's like very, very elite, but might not play 
the, the biggest games for a while. So yeah, the games were, were like definitely objectively good. And I thought, I still believe that I didn't really play any games I was losing in. Um, so yeah, I was like, I'll play it then. But, but then what happened was um, I started to run not great, I would say. Uh, I, I think I lost like 27 buy-ins or something at 10K plus. Uh, so it's not like a, a bad downswing at all. It's like a normal downswing. But when you start, and, and like, this is the biggest problem really, is like when you lose 27 buy-ins and it's like, and for me, it wasn't even much money because it was, I sold so much action, but I couldn't get away from the anchoring of like how much money it was in real terms. And it's such a normal downswing to, to have. This is the other problem that like having an emotional reaction to a normal downswing is like somewhat problematic for me because I've gone through my whole career without like having this problem. Um, well, that's not true. Obviously, every time I lose 20 buns, it's not like I'm like jumping around with happiness, but, but I can deal with it. I know it's part of the game. Um, and I think my friend, um, like my housemate Frank was good with this as well, because I had like one day I lost like 50K or something at 10K. Um, and then I like, was like moaning a bit about him to it. And he was like, hey, you're playing 10K now, mate. Like you're going to obviously lose 50K. Like, and as brutal as it sounds, it's what you need to hear. Because you have to remember, like, you can't play these games. And like, like, obviously there's like a honeymoon period, which always comes with playing new sticks. But if you feel like elation on winning a stack and like dis despair on losing a stack, you can't play good poker. And like, I think the goal for me, like, again, I think I was winning all the time I was playing. And like, if anything, my players were a bit too risk averse. I think I remember one like unbelievable two and a big blind bluff against Brack where um, it was like a pyre line, I would like to say. It's like a line which pyre likes, but in practice, it's just minus 20K or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I just I just was like feeling way too much emotion with the daily swings. And then also had like some, I had like a big shoulder injury um, this year and like breakup and stuff. And I was like, it's just sensible to take a step back um but again it's the community helps a lot because it, it, it you're, you're so involved with your ego at this point where you're like look like I, i'm sure i'm better than these players like with some of these players at least and like some, some of these players have these insane results and those please like i want this to be me like you get like i want the fame and stuff to some extent it's never been that important but it's just nice to to think that people will think like oh yeah like it's cool that this guy like came from small stakes playing those please um and then obviously it went bad and i was like oh, how is this fair but with my house, I think my housemates were very good at this as well. They're like, look, like we do think you're playing these games, like we would take your action if you kept playing. I actually wasn't, I was a certain action to someone else, not them. They're like, we would take your action, but at the same time, like emotionally and for like happiness, I'm not sure it's the best path for you. And like, I think it's sensible to take a step back for a while. Um, so yeah, I, I was kind of in this stage where I was like winning, my overall win rate this year has been like three big blind compared to five big blind plus previous years, so a bit worse. And then because of the, um, bad run of 40k and 20k for a while it was like quite a big hole which wasn't like having any effect at all in my life but yeah just 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 emotionally it makes playing poker so much harder if you care what happens hand to hand i think um and yeah i, I would like to think I'll, I'll be back but just for now i thought it was sensible to to move down a bit can i ask mm -hmm. you a question here i wanted to i wanted to hop in real quick sorry adam uh i i wrote down a question around this topic that you know, in general, it's obviously hard to to lose a lot. But I found that after I started to coach and be, became a bit more of a public figure, so to speak, right, more out there, I personally found it handling losses are way more difficult than if you're not a coach that people sort of look up to. Uh, like, if I don't have my shit together and if I'm not performing well, the last thing I want to do is explain other people how to do it. If you understand what I mean, you I, I suffer from very yeah. big imposter syndrome. Do you yeah. experience yeah. anything similar? 
yeah I definitely had these these exact feelings really where I feel like because I've always always been also quite publicly outspoken where I've, I've said like I've said like publicly before that I don't think people who don't play should necessarily be like coaching people who, who do play high stakes if that makes sense mm-hmm. so I, I would like publicly like say that like I think someone who's like I think and, and even this year it's kind of heightened my feeling of this that you have to be in the arena um at least to some extent to understand like what works in the arena and like mm-hmm. commenting from an outsider is difficult so then when when it comes like you're in the arena and you're just getting hammered and then you're like oh yeah like I'm I'm coaching all these guys I'm telling them like these are the best strategies to play um but then like outwardly your results look so bad because you because because you lost so much when you were playing it does make you feel a bit like um a bit I definitely had sometimes where I felt a bit like a fraud uh in these circumstances and and I think it's just a like like I said 27 binds is whatever it's, it's variance um and like objectively I don't think I played too badly in these samples there were some problems I played badly but there was definitely a dose of humble pie in there where like players who I would like say I thought were like not playing so well because of x y and z uh started to like do so well over, over bigger samples that you couldn't really deny that you were wrong anymore um and again it's just like the whole progression of learning in poker I think is just realizing that like how how careful you have to be to trust your own, to trust your own judgment when there's so much variance involved, um, and yeah, definitely taking lessons from that um, and learn, learn a lot from that stretch in that way. But yeah, the, the imposter syndrome is definitely something I can relate with. Adam, help us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can see the issue. So you've got like first of all your own results that you care about a lot and trying to win, and often we care more about other people than we do ourselves in a lot of scenarios. When you've got like a coaching group, you've got friends and peers who believe in you. You've got people who you're yeah helping on their journeys and they look up to you. All of a sudden, like you're, when your results start to shake a bit, you're like, oh shit, like I'm meant to be helping these guys. And I'm the one who from the outside looks like I haven't got my shit together. I think like the main thing to take away is very often like in both your scenarios, like your students aren't going to think less of you regardless of your results. In your head, you'll be like, oh, I lose this stake. My students are going to be like, I'm a, I'm a loser. I'm an idiot. Very often, like they have a lot of respect for you. They're going to continue to have a lot of respect for you. You're constantly giving them value in many, many ways. And they're probably more aware than you are how much variance is playing in your kind of results day to day. So uh, sometimes we get so zoomed into our own situation and we think everyone else around us is like kind of as zoomed in on us as we are. And yeah. we just be able to drop that it's a hard thing because obviously like you, you do want to have good results and like george was saying like you don't want to feel like an imposter you want to be in the arena getting good results showing your students look look what i'm doing you copy me like you want to lead by example but sometimes in poker that's just not possible you can't just be the guy who gets the good results all the time especially in the short term and you want to be able to live with that so yeah i think it's a it's a battle to face and you guys both have to uh kind of kind of come to terms with that yeah. it almost like Lowering that performance pressure and realize that the people who look up to you, your students, the people in your peer group will continue to look up to you, will continue to respect you. This is you. Like that's like changing your opinion of yourself. And it's that coming to terms with that more than anything. Yeah. And I, I think like the other thing that help, helps me a lot is with it being like we all play the same, basically. Like we we have the same ideas about the game and play very similarly. Obviously, like Daryl executes better than me, but like at least we're thinking on the same lines and, and like you see that like you just get a bigger sample on like your strategy and you see like the students are still crushing like your friends are still crushing there's no possible way that you can be like not crushing when they're looking at your hands and saying i would have played the same and you know they think about the game the exact same which definitely helps but um there was another tangent i was going to go on as well here which is just to add like it just it just every year i kind of realize more and more like how impossible it is to appreciate variance for what it is where like i spend so much of my life trying to think about like how bad variance can be and how you can deal with it when it happens. But like a good example is like last year, at the end of last year, I was running really, really well. I had like 
uh, like over half a million in winnings. And I was like feeling like the God complex, just so to speak. And like, um, starting to like, um, yeah, like really believe I was good. And another coach was like running really bad in this time. And I, I knew he was running bad, like, because of all the things I've talked about, but at the same time, my subconscious couldn't help, but start to think like, I'm just better than him. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I was aware of this happening. I was, I was like, yeah, like, it's like, I could, I could see it was flawed, but at the same time, it still starts to kind of seep into how you believe things. Cause humans just are wired to look at what happens and be like, this happens for a reason. Um, so yeah, just, just every year, like I said, I just realized more and more how hard it is to, to, um, to fight this. Mm, kind of. Yeah. It's almost like the unwinnable battle to fight variance. Variance is like the God of uncertainty and he's always there and he's ruling everything. And you try to pin him down and go, right, I'm going to create some certainty here. I'm going to create some security here. And he's just laughing at the whole game going, ah, uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. And you're trying to outsmart him. You think, oh, I've got a point now where I'm going to get one over on him. It's almost like playing like Linus and thinking you're outsmarting him and exploiting him. And he's yeah, just yeah. starts oh, I got you here. See, I think it's one of those things that's really, variance is just like the, the most kind of beautiful thing about poker, but also the most challenging. And it does like create so much turmoil because... I think especially for players like yourself, George, who like certainty, you like that security, you like knowing what's going to happen, you like being able to uh, predict your win rates and player pools and what's going to happen kind of results-wise. And like variance just it kind of doesn't allow for that. And the more like you go into bigger kind of bigger games and less sample sizes, the more variance gets magnified, the more you have to come to terms with, wait a second, I don't know. I don't know what's yeah, going to happen. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to win. And can you be okay not knowing? Now, this is like a real tough one for poker players because literally your whole identity is built on solving problems, being smart, knowing answers. And then variance with variance, you've got to say, I don't know what's going to come next. I can't plan for this. Anything can happen in the short term. Ah, can I breathe through that? Can I be okay with it? And it's in different scenarios, it becomes more and more challenging. So yeah, I think it's a ongoing work. I think it's it's almost like every level you go in, in poker, you've got to relearn the variance, how, how variance into players. But I like your, your self-awareness as well to uh, to acknowledge that even though everyone around you is telling you you're playing great, even though you could sell your action to limit your kind of um, exposure, you still felt like, ah, uh, I'm too emotionally attached to these buy-ins. All right, so not the money itself is like, okay, 27 buy-ins. You're almost like trying to calibrate your emotional response in, the, in kind of real time and go, uh, this emotional response I'm having isn't calibrated to those 27 buy-ins. I'm getting too attached to the money part of it. Hmm, probably a good time to back off and not push through that, even though the people around you might want you to. See, so yeah, again, it comes down to knowing yourself well. I'm sure you'll rebuild. You'll get more confidence. You'll get more clarity and confidence that you can get throughout your career. And you'll play those games with a higher degree of certainty and the risk will feel a lot less. But at the same time, it's like knowing where you are now and being able to back away at the right times. Yeah. Yeah. And the only advice, I guess, I, I well, the thing I've learned this year about these games as well, and that like, we discuss this a lot in our house because like obviously Daryl and Marcus always in these like 40K games when they're running, 100K games when they're running. And I think you just have to really understand that like you will not get a sample in these games. Like that there's no way you'll ever like like play enough of these games to reach the long run because they just don't run enough. And this is something you have to come to terms with. And if you're going to play them, you have to like accept that like, like you're making an extremely positive decision because it's extremely high stakes. And, and like I said, the players aren't necessarily as good as, as the lower stakes. But you you're you're making an extremely positive decision with a ton of variance around it. And like if you're happy with that, you live with the outcome of the decision as well. And I think I was like, yeah, at, for me, it, like I said, I was so nitty with selling action anyway. It wasn't really high stakes. But even with that in mind, I think like I thought I was happy with the decision. But then when like shit hit the fan and like it really like started going badly, I, I mentally wasn't. Cause like, yeah, once poker starts to seep into your life and like your feeling is like dictated on on how well a day went, it's just not it's not for me. I think some people can live with it but for me i like want to like not have like um 
dark cloud on losing days uh, and bright sunlight on winning days at least. Yeah, you saw you saw the warning signs. You saw poker, your, your mood being affected by the day to day swings. Yeah, very interesting how you you, you talked about that in terms of because when I think about variance, I always like think the positive kind of mindset with it is variance will kind of even out of the long run, or at least for your mind, you want to uh, convince your mind that variance isn't against you. And if you play enough of a sample of your career, that will be somewhat in the realm of uh, kind of running true. But playing these high games, going in there with the pretense of this var the variance is going to play a huge role. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't play enough volume to get past that variance. So I'm in the hands of the guards right now in terms of what's going to happen in this shot take. It's super high stakes, so it could impact my year or a few years if I run really bad. Go, deal with that. Like It's all, it's really challenging because it makes you, uh, it, it really throws you into that uncertain environment where there's almost nothing to hold on to. It is like a very, yeah, kind of volatile place where obviously things go well. You look back and go, oh yeah, I'm glad I did it. But obviously it's good for yourself to recalibrate and go, wait a second, do I want to uh, be in this environment? Also, uh, is the emotional response I'm getting something I want to to keep dealing with? So yeah, it's a very very interesting uh, situation. Yeah. All right. So final question from me. Looking back on your career, if you could give yourself one piece of advice when you were stuck, let's say mid stakes, uh, I think you were there for like three years at one point playing like a kind of two hundred kind of level. What one piece of advice would you give yourself that you've learned since then that would fast track your progress? Yeah, it's it's tough, but like. I always think like the obvious thing to say is like don't don't do the corporate job, you know. But then like like it's kind of the butterfly effect problem. You're like, if I didn't do this, maybe I would never have the drive. Cause like, I worked so hard for a couple of well, still for after I got after I quit this job because I had the motivation to be like, I have to make it count. So like I struggle with that. And then the other thing I always think about is like I stressed a lot through my life, like worrying about like whether it would be all right, you know, like whether like I'd like be okay financially, whatever, um, like whether my my like goals would come come to fruition. And like, obviously I'm 29 now and I'm like in, in a spot where like when I was 22, I'd have been extremely happy with when I was 16 or whatever. But um, there was so much stress like through the journey that like I, I would kind of like to have known it would be all right. But then saying this is, is butterfly effect again, because like maybe if you know everything's going to turn out all right, you like lose the fire and like, like as cliche as it is, the journey is like the fun. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you, you don't want to like, yeah, I, you don't want to know that everything's going to be okay. It's like part of the fun is like you're working hard, hoping that like it pays off in the long run. Um, and like the climb is like the, the, the funnest part, you know, like you always hear stories about people reach their goals and they're like, what next? Um, so yeah, uh, I haven't really given an answer then. Um, what advice would I give myself? Um, I would like to have known earlier on in my career that like not, not to stop copying the solvers basically. So like look, look, I was I maybe like look at your opponents would have been a good good piece of advice for me early on in my career I think, um, which yeah. wouldn't have had too many downsides. I like that. I think as often with advice, like you said, sometimes we've got to learn the lessons the hard way and going through the struggles is part of the progress that the process we need to go through. But other times, like one little snippet of advice that we could learn a bit earlier, which is like fast track us, like like twelve months or six months that we were kind of around the edges, but like a bit off track. So I think always like through life, as you get wiser and wiser, you can kind of look back on parts of your life. If I knew that that little part, that would have been a kind of cheat sheet for me to get further. Yeah, it was interesting what you're saying, basically, like how much you worried about throughout your career. And I think it's very interesting to think about like how much the worry was needed. So one and one element, like worry is going to get you to uh, try harder, to uh, put time into your game, to really think about the problems and try to solve them. So there's an element like worry will play it a positive role but on the other side it's like there's gonna be lots of negatives on your mood your ability to be creative your ability to 
play your best poker. And it's like, it, it was the worry needed? Did you succeed because of the money? That was a cause relationship? Or was it in spite of it? If we remove that worry, would that have freed you to play even better poker? Obviously, no clue. But I think it's really interesting to go, uh, which of the uh, kind of things that I used to fuel me to go forward, which of those helped me that I really needed them? And which ones I could have dropped? So for example, I always think like life is a, a big journey. So as you know, the process to get somewhere. But if we like struggle through life to get to an outcome, very often we're like, ah, did I need to struggle? And not struggles in like working hard and doing the stuff, but did my relationship with what I had to do be, had to be negative? Could I not have enjoyed the process of figuring that out a bit more? Could I have almost like smelled the roses, so to speak, on that journey a little bit more? And almost, almost always the answer is yes, to some degree. And like for you, like in terms of not worrying as much, maybe like not knowing that things are going to work out, but like a belief like somewhere implanted into your brain that, I'm going to find a way to figure this out. I can worry, but not too much because I'm the kind of person who's going to find my way through all this kind of fog and all this, all this stuff that's going on. I'll find a way. Maybe like something like that would have helped to uh, alleviate the worry just to make the, the journey itself more enjoyable. It might have led you to the same place. It might have, the worry might've been actually a factor that helped you. But yeah, I think it's always good to look back and go, right, how can I take some lessons from this that maybe will help me or I can relate to someone else to, to help them. Yeah, yeah. I struggle a lot with this still because I kind of agree with you like self-belief would have helped a lot but then the problem is that I still have with this is I'm like yeah it, it maybe it would have been better if I believed in myself a lot earlier on that would have like reduce some of the stress um not that I didn't enjoy obviously the, the climb because of the climb which is still ongoing um because because I do find it enjoyable day in day out but then the, the problem I have as well is I'm like look I am where I am today and like was it, it's not necessarily inevitable that I'd make it here if that if that makes sense so if I like draw the conclusion like, oh yeah, I made it to, to high stakes. I'm like friends of all these guys. Therefore, um, like from this, I can take confidence that I believe I can do anything. But it's like, there's obviously like, who knows, like maybe there was like, maybe I like ran like top top 1% to get here and stuff like this. So I try and like still be objective or like realistic. It's quite likely that I'm like a survivor to some extent of like a lot of unforeseen timelines, which didn't, didn't come to fruition. And then not like, uh believe too much in my own success as like a um as as a justification for other things because i do see a lot in poker players sometimes where they take the their success in poker and believe that they can be successful in like x other field which is unrelated to poker and normally i would say on average they're, they're more likely to be more likely to be wrong even though poker players do have a lot of very good transferable skills it's just this it's the god complex again i guess like um so yeah, it's, it's a really tough balance though. Yeah, because like I said, I think the ultimate thing that you should strive for is your life satisfaction, like how well you feel about yourself every day. And I definitely haven't got that right all the time. And I probably got it right in the direction that you say where like I've been like more worried than I should have been. Um, but then want to balance it by not uh, believing too much in my own myth, so to speak or whatever. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting that what you're talking about, basically like getting overconfidence that you're good at one thing and trying to apply that to other things. I had a friend, a conversation with my friends probably last week, actually. And we were talking about this where people get into ventures and they have a high degree of confidence, even though then having the expertise to back it up. It's like almost like you've been researching something, then you make like a big risky invest investment. And they're like, well, like you're, you're the fish in this avenue. Like, do you not yeah, know yeah. Like, the expertise? I think somebody's poker, like, especially when you're like playing for a long time, you realize in this niche format at this particular time, I have edge. If you take me out of that, put me somewhere else. I'm a fish. Like it's almost all over the world. So, uh, so it's like knowing your lane, knowing where your expertise are good and not misapplying those. Because obviously if you're good at poker, yes, you're smart, but you put you into a different field, the chances of you instantly being out smaller than other people in that field is very, very low. So yeah, I think it's a, 
a thing that poker players who are branching out of poker need to be aware of. On the flip side, I think if you make your success in poker, there's a very good chance you've learned enough attributes, enough self-awareness, so to speak, as we've been talking about, that you've great enough character traits that if you acquire skills in a different area, you'll be you have enough like kind of soft skills to be able to make it work. Like say going into starting your own business, you can tolerate risk, you can be your own boss, you can be productive, you know how to learn. There's a very good chance that you can pick something up, but at the same time, it's the still risk. So I think it's a yeah, a double ended sword that tough you can balance. Yeah. to balance. Yeah, to balance. And, yeah. and I think as well, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Um, yeah. I was going to say, like, I think as well as the stakes you're playing, because obviously poker lets you have the capital that you can go into whatever new field and like instantly play high stakes. Um, so like you jump into like, yeah, you can A, believe in yourself too much because poker won't well for you and then B, instantly jump into tough games. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the skill sets transferable. It's just important to figure out what game you're playing. Like you don't want to like open up an e-commerce platform to rival against Amazon because that's like sitting Linus heads up. But like if you're playing like, if you're taking over a, a shipping business in Amsterdam, uh, taking playing against like the, the two and L regs who've just been there all years because they've got a ring fence site, then yeah, sure your your transfers gonna, your skills are going to transfer more more uh, profitably. Such a good analogy. What game are you playing, and what's the competition? It's very good to like always be aware of that. And yeah, like you said, poker players who are very good financially, got a good bankroll, they might jump into a very high stakes game that they're not skilled in. It's yeah, it's very. Very good to think about, yeah, the games you're playing in the competition relative to uh, the skill level you have at the time. Yeah, very and thought about that in terms of every life path, but it's it's so true. It's, it's such a true equation to, to think about. All right, Rene, have you got any questions that you want to uh, ask George? Yeah, I, I think another important skill that you learn through poker is the ability to analyze and improve. So whatever venture you decide to hop in, you probably have developed the, the skill of continuous improvement. So you know how to put something in practice. You are automatically analytical. So you're always trying to look at, okay, how can I improve this? How can I improve that? You probably relate to this, George, also like in other areas of your life. Just a part of your brain that automatically turns on. It's like you automatically analyze and you look for, hey, how can this be better? How can this be improve, improved? So I think that that really helps. I think if you learned how to get better in something, in this case, poker, it's very, the skills are very uh, transmittable to other areas as well. So I think I think that really helps. Yeah. Uh, I have a couple of final questions, and then uh, then I think we should let uh, George go. As Adam likes to say, be respect be respectful of George's time. Uh, <laughs> I have a couple more questions that I that I wrote down that I want to touch on that we that we didn't get to. At some point, you mentioned that one uh, K and L players still make a lot of mistakes there compared to elite level or to Pio. I think you mentioned both. What, in your opinion, sets elite apart from 1K and L, for example, where, you know, people are already playing really good poker? Yeah. All right. I think, so, So like, we can start by, like, quantifying elite, I guess. Like, because there, there there's a line between, like, I, I was, I meant to even say to start the podcast, like, I wouldn't classify myself as, like, an elite player, you know? Like, I, I'm not, I'm not going to sit down in these nosebleed battles and expect to win. Um, but I would also think, that I'm better than the average 1K now regular, um, obviously partly because of the environment I, I got into. Um, but yeah, so it's like the difference between like a, an average 1K player and, and myself, ho hopefully at least. And then the difference between myself and like, yeah, the guys who I think are the best of the best, like say mm -hmm. Davy Jones, Ospiel, Daryl, um, et cetera. Um, obviously, um, Linus Marcus. Um, so I think like so much of it is, this kind of crystallization of where EV is generated, um, 
where like I think the really good players they're like looking to win. Do you know what I mean? They're like sat there and they're being like, how how can I how can I generate big blinds to myself in this game? How can I generate win rate for myself? Whereas a one average one K player is either much more passively trying to implement his chosen game plan, um, where he's like trying to copy the output without necessarily understanding well enough where it generates EV to be able to deviate well against different opponents. Or there's a lot of 1K players nowadays who are like more kind of protocol based where maybe they follow like a game plan, which is by default exploitative, but they're not capable of like, they, they don't understand well enough like the nuances of where to move away from that. So you've got the two sides of the spectrum. You've got like the kind of the, the copiers, well, they're both copiers in a different way, I guess. Um, whereas the, the higher stakes players are, are much more like crystallizing their vision. So they're going to be playing completely differently against different players. And then their like baseline understanding of equilibrium is going to be better. So like their understanding of their own strategy is going to be stronger to start with. And then the deviations they make against weaker players is going to be are going to be bigger as well. Um, so overall it just just generates more EV. Like if they run in, if they run into a very strong player, they play very strongly themselves. So they don't lose much EV to them. And if they play against a very weak player, they play uh much, they 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 transfer much higher EV to them. So that's that's how I would qualify, I guess. I think it's a very, very, very good answer. To be honest, very good answer. I think uh, also it's natural that when you start to play higher stakes, the pool becomes smaller. So it's natural that you start to focus a bit more on single opponents instead of pools, or just focus on your own strategy, right? From playing from equilibrium. Uh, so I think it's also kind of the environment that kind of triggers that as well. I think, right? Yeah, definitely. And, and, but you and like, can you cannot study all your opponents if you're playing five hundred NL, right? It's way better yeah. to uh, to study general pool trends and kind of label. Okay, here's the pool. You fall a bit on the right spectrum of the pool. You fall a bit on the left spectrum of the pool. You know, and obviously you can use like maybe certain hood stats that are particular to how you would deviate a certain strategy. Let's say, for example, proping proping stats, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I definitely agree with you. It becomes way more important to know your opponents when you play high stakes. Also, just because like when when you're playing a random one k table, it's quite unlikely you're against you're playing that one of the regs in the table is like really destroying you for for win rate. Whereas if you start playing five k, um, and you're like, all right, this game's good because I'm I'm a professional poker player, there's a recreational player. Then you've got like I keep using David Jones as an example because he's my current current favorite player to say is is the <laughs> is the end boss. But uh, you got him at your table like. You have to realize this is a seat which is actively taking EV away from you, um, rather than rather than just being like, oh, this all it's five regs and a fish, and we're chopping up the fish's money. It's like, all right, now I've got uh, I've got a fish, I've got four regs, and I've got a reg who's kind of making me into a bit of a fish. Um, so I think it's it's like a different game for that reason too. Um, the other thing I was going to add actually as well is that that there are just like there's a lot of different kind of poker players like lots of people have been playing poker for a long time developed a lot of capital and nowadays they just show up and like they play they play the like fish rec they play games with recreational players and they're like not really bothered about too much other than like trying to slowly siphon money away from the fish and play like okay against the rest of the regulars um and these players show up but like these guys play 1k they play high stakes as well um and they're, they're like very uh, good respectable players in their own right um but they're, at the same time they're not just they're just not gonna fight in the same way or like um they're, they're gonna have all the human leaks because they didn't really work hard to to, to become subhuman wait that's, that's the wrong word to become. Yeah. Um, cyborg <laughs> yeah yeah they didn't really work hard to fight to fight their leaks and they don't really have a reason to because they developed that capital base and they're just trying to like make their uh, nice yearly winnings now so 
yeah, it's like these guys are, are different to someone like coming up the stakes, I think, as well. I think that's good advice. One one thing that that we asked you or like highlights of your career. Now you mentioned a couple of things, but one thing I thought was very beautiful, which was that you mentioned that actually other people's success stood out for you. That was kind of like seeing other people succeed. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I thought a lot when when you asked this question. I thought it was a good question because I was, and I thought about it and I was like, since I started playing professionally again, I don't think there's been like a, an actual moment, day, or, or session where I've been like, wow, like what a highlight that was. Mostly because I've been fighting quite a lot to like not not uh, be results oriented, I guess. Um, but all along, I've like I felt a long time I'm much better at coaching than playing poker. Uh, I think possibly just because of what we talked about with the mental game side, like my risk aversion is like so far on one side naturally that no matter how much I've improved it over the years and how hard I'm going to fight it, I'm always going to struggle to execute as well as other people do um, and hopefully improving that year on year and getting better and better. But coaching, that's not so much of a problem. Um, and like, I, I, I don't know how much I can attribute people's success to me, but like a lot of my students have had a lot of success for years, like beyond what I've had, for example. And um, yeah, I think I wrote in the, in the um uh like uh, the thing is with cash as well it's all one grind so you don't really get as much of like a highlight session as you do in tournaments um so it is the tournament results that really stand out to me where like um yeah like the the, the most the nicest one recently was when linus and uh sam grafton were heads up in the trident um and obviously i can't claim to have coached uh linus at all but obviously he's a close friend of mine and we all we all had a piece in our house so it was like a, a sick sweat to watch him like playing this 100k heads up uh, and like watch it like cheering every knockout um but yeah yeah sam and me worked together a lot through the years just because he wanted to he was like a very strong tournament player but wanted more like uh understanding of how to play deeper uh and, and not hemorrhage money basically to uh the better players in these high rollers and then to, he had like obviously this insane score in this field and he sent me like a really nice voice message afterwards and it's like such a subtle little thing um but for me, it was like a real kind of like highlight moment because I already had a really good feeling, obviously, because Linus did so well. And then um, when like Sam actually beat Linus heads up and then when he sent me this message, it's like, yeah, just just kind of nice to see that uh, A, he appreciated it. I'm not sure how much I can claim credit for because obviously he was very, very good anyway. And so much of the tournaments is not the stage which we were studying. Um, but yeah, I had a really, really, um, probably, probably amongst my, like definitely my happiest days in poker this day, I would say. Nice. Yeah, I can definitely relate with that. Like, uh, I receive messages, for example, also just with making content or this podcast, I receive a random message of Discord, someone I've never known. Hey, man, you really, you really helped a lot with the podcast. Amazing stuff. Yeah, you know, th these kind of things are really, really nice to hear. Same with with students who contribute, uh, you know, at least a part of their success to you. Uh, I think you know, it's like in the in the hierarchy uh, pyramid of needs, right? At some point, is contribution to others. It's naturally kind of the next step. You reach a certain success yourself, then you feel the need to contribute. Um, talking about like success and being 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 satisfied, you mentioned that the end goal in life is not to be good in poker, but to be good in life. So in terms of looking forward, what are your goals and how do you define being good in life? Yeah, yeah, and like what you yeah, well related to this, what you said about um. Yeah, contributing to others, I think, resonates a lot with me because it is dubious in poker whether you're like contributing well to the world or whatever. And like when I went to consultants as part of what I thought, I was like, now I can go and do like use my my skills, my intellect to do some good in the world, maybe, possibly. 
but when I was in the corporate world, also I was like, it's not really true. Um, what I'm doing isn't necessarily betting poker. But then when you look on a more micro scale, like making differences in people's lives that you can do through coaching or like through poker itself, it's just a nice feeling. And I think like the world's so complex that this is like a, a noble goal to aspire to, I guess, to be like, uh, be able to like make a small difference to a small amount of people who like you can you can really say it's true that you did make their life better. Uh, so yeah, links to part of what I want to um, aspire to in poker, I guess. I, I just like playing poker still, like I really enjoy it. So I want to keep playing and hopefully hopefully keep enjoying it. Um, and um, yeah, like keep, I, I would like to say I'll be back in these, these, these like nosebleed games at some point, but at the very least like maintain like my status as kind of a 5k, 2k regular um, and like maintain good results there and like keep, keep like running bit B and like bringing through different people through there and like expanding the community, um, the community there and like keep having good results. And I think like poker has a lot of time like obviously I've told you before I thought poker was done when I was 22 years old seven years ago um but I think there's like a lot of life yet left in the game like maybe it just carries on endlessly honestly given what 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 I see um and um yeah like positive more positive regulation coming with America and stuff like massive new markets opening out sites actually starting to care a bit more about game integrity um and then worst case scenario like I used to think if you play against a bot you you lose your entire bankroll in minutes but it's just not true like bots don't really win that much money against elite players anyway um so yeah i think a lot of reasons to be hopeful where like maybe there wasn't um maybe in the past i just misperceived what was going on so yeah i'd quite like to still be playing poker and uh continue playing poker like good volume over the next few years and just hopefully keep enjoying it as well what do you think going forward is the biggest threat in terms of you trying to achieve your goals something that you have to be on the lookout for um it's a tough question sleeping i guess because the problem is in in austria you've got to play poker at ridiculous hours um well if you if you're very good you can play the morning schedule but um if you want to have a nicer grind you have to play in the evenings um so yeah depend maybe one day one time i get sick about going sick of going to bed at 2 a.m because i'm more of a morning person generally but that's that's a cop answer um i'm not sure really i kind of believe that if that, that with the spot I'm in now, I'm obviously so lucky with the the house I'm in. Um, that like assuming nothing ex ex genius is that the word external. If nothing external happens, things would go well. Um, I think the one thing I worry about a bit is regulation. I'm like worried that like because so much of poker now is uh, ACR and GG. Uh, like who knows what what's going on legally there. Like and then there's like the crypto risk as well, where like um, all the sites are crypto based. Like there's obviously tough to know like how exposed they themselves are to crypto so assuming that nothing bad happens with like the poker websites I, I would feel like um i'm in a pretty good place and nothing terrible happens to me or my family <laughs> but yeah all right you have any final questions for george adam no i think we've left it at a good stage and i'm but i want to thank george for his time being a great guest and yeah we've picked your brain apart here hopefully the audience have enjoyed it and yeah, thank you very much for sharing your experience with us. And yeah, it's been really, really enjoyable. Any last thing you would like to say, uh, George? No, thanks, guys. It was it was an absolute pleasure um, to be on. And um, yeah, really enjoyed it. Three hours, I think, has gone by. And it's absolutely flown by. So yeah, and keep, keep putting the podcast out as well because I enjoy uh, watching them as well. So normally this is the moment where I say, what a great episode. But this time, it was an absolutely great episode. Don't you think, Adam? 
I agree. It was an amazing conversation. Uh, lots of good takeaways for the audience. Some of the main themes that were coming out for me throughout the conversation were George's self-awareness, his ability to uh, almost like seek certainty in situations so that he can have more confidence and more clarity. He almost like classified himself as quite risk averse, someone who likes safety and security, yet he's been able to play a super high stakes poker throughout his career. It's been because he's known himself well enough. He's known when to push forward. He's known when to back off. He's known when to play with a high amount of buy-ins for his bankroll relative to kind of other players. But he's always had the self-awareness to be able to check in with himself and know where he's at, which has been a huge skill. Also, community. He's talked about all the players he's been around, some of the, the legends of the online game right now. He's been living with, being partnered with, being friends with, being around them in their environments. And all of these help shape him. I think he said they've shaped them into the, the player years. But also, like I think when you're around good players like that, you're often given a lot to the table. I think George spoke a lot about he's kind of a given person, likes to coach others, like help others. And the reason he's around really high-level people is because he's a high-level person himself and they gain a lot from being around him. So I think often when we think of being in a good community, you need to realize you've got to be a giver in those communities as well to, uh, to thrive, which he obviously is. I really like the analogy of building scar tissue. Uh, that just resonates so strongly with, with me and the visuals really clear. In terms of going through adversity, it makes you tougher. All right, so building resilience, building mental toughness. He talked about first of all his swimming career, how that made him a bit tougher and pain thresholds. And then he talked about going through uh, downswings, break-even patches, where he had to reflect. And each one of those events was scar tissue, building scar tissue so he could come back and come back stronger next time. So yeah, amazing takeaways. I think, uh, yeah, George was a great guest. What, what, what were some of the things that you wrote down for your main points, Rene? Um, I focus a bit more on the on the tactical, you know. I leave the try. I try to not interfere too much with the mental game. Um, what I wrote down is the the difference that he he mentioned between average players and elite. Uh, that they the elite are very much focused on winning, where the average are more focusing on not to lose. Right. In in general, I think we talked about this actually in the Berkey episode as well. GTO plays from a frame of okay, I play solid. Uh, so I cannot lose. It's a bit defensive, whereas exploitative, you're looking more for weaknesses of your opponent and trying to attack to gain more win rate than you should, right? You're taking EV from them, as I think George mentioned many times. And he really talked about the difference. Obviously, he also said that if they need to play defensive because they play against a very strong player, their you know, fundamental knowledge of the game and how they can play close to equilibrium is still very high. But then once an exploit opens up, or let's say, for example, the play versus a recreational who has a lot of leaks, they tend to be way better in deviating from their game plan and make the correct exploit to make way more money. I thought this was a great, uh, um, yeah, a great explanation of the difference between average and elite players. I also, one thing that I think he highlighted is that there are many ways you can be successful in poker. I think he said, okay, this guy, maybe from a strategic perspective, I think he has a lot of leaks. But he every time is the biggest winner at the end of the year because he's always there. He plays all the volume. And, you know, maybe the things that I think are leaks are maybe not really hurting his 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 bottom line that much, right? He also talked about where the money actually comes from. Well, in that case, probably within his strategy, the leaks were not probably costing him a lot of money. And he was maybe playing always in good games. He was always there making the volume. So I thought those were really important points as well. Um he was talking about to be the practitioner and not the theory professor. I think that was also his main takeaway for himself, right? If he could give advice to himself, you know, get out of the theory world and start thinking about 
uh, in practice. I think we should really think about how theory applies in the real game and not copy the solver, right? A GTO, a solver, it's just a GTO model. It's a toy game we can learn from. We can learn certain concepts from that, but we should always think about how does this translate into practice. And this is also something that I think uh, good players, you know, do better than the average players. And the last point I wrote down is to how to stay more consistent during variance. Uh, so if it goes very well, he talked about having the gut syndrome. And if it goes very bad, you feel like the worst player in the world. I think, you know, if you can reduce those swings, obviously no one is immune to that, but working on ways how to better deal with the adversity in poker, I think that was one of the key, uh, the key... The key aspects that he saw, I think, in students who succeeded, they were able to deal with variance a little bit better. So they stayed consistent in maybe their studying time. They stayed consistent in executing the strategy they knew was good throughout ups and downs. Okay, so they were not deviated from their strategy. Another point that I then added was the financial pressure. Uh, this is definitely something that you should try to not get yourself into. This sounds very obvious, but you know people are not really conscious about... Uh, like their bankroll management, the amount of money they spend, uh, you know, their living cost, etc., their risk of ruin, all that kind of stuff. Okay, because once you're playing under financial stress, it's really hard to perform optimally. All right. I want to thank Adam. First podcast of this year. All right. Hope many great podcasts to come. If you're interested in improving your poker career this year, if you feel like this 2023 is the year. For you guys, we have reopened up the Mechanics of Poker for the first week of January. You can now apply. So go over to mechanicsofpoker.com, fill out your application, and we'll be taking on a couple of students for our program. So this could be you. Get a chance to work together with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.